Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and Pop Culture Podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 272, with 10th anniversary celebrators Graham McMillan and myself answering questions asked of us by listeners on Patreon, Twitter, and via email, including Understanding the Appeal of John Byrne, Punk and Comics, Early 80s DC, The Manga, Drops of God, and much, much more in this not-quite-2.5-hour episode. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, how are you? I am good, and I'm happy to say that because we'll start the episode with me going, Jeff Lester, we won't hear what sounded like you were playing with your microphone just after I answered the call. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was a little worried, because, you know, I'm a little worried about how close my mouth and beard is to this thing. And still, even with everything that I try to do, there's still a ridiculous amount of bleed in terms of, like, when I mute you, I can still hear, like, when I've got some editing in two channels, if I mute your channel, I can still hear you on my channel. It's a thing. It's a thing. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm also going to jump from that to share something that I literally just read that I have to share with the world. I have to share with you. I, okay. Uh, as you know, I am obsessed with Marvel Age magazine. The, yes. the promotional, like, you know, Marvel official fanzine from like 80 something through like 93, I think it ran. Mm-hmm. And today I picked up Marvel Age 1992 preview, where they basically, like, you know, these are the books we're coming out in the next few months. And two things. One, they've clearly just cut and pasted from pitches for some of them. Wow. So you get them saying things like, if this series is as popular as we hope, you'll see more of this character after the initial five-issue run. Wow. But secondly, Nomad, which stars Jack Monroe, Mm-hmm. Like, remember they essentially did, like, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, uh, Cub, but with, like, mullets? Yep. With Nomad? The, the write-up for that actually starts the Jack Kerouac of the superset. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the Jack Kerouac of the superset, Jeff. So, just think about that the next time you think about Nomad. Uh, see, now here's the thing, Graham. That might be a big plus for me, because otherwise, the next time I'll think of Nomad, it's the like the last time I thought of Nomad, which is it's the name being taken on now by Bucky instead of Winter Soldier. Wait, it, wait, had this conversation? Are you saying this because of the Twitter conversation with Amy yesterday? Yes, completely. See, I was going to say this is a conversation I had with Amy yep. with Tater Pie on Twitter yesterday. Yes, and she got really upset with me. Yes, because you're wrong. I mean, it's am, am I wrong? Yes, do you, do you, I just don't like the name the Winter Soldier. I like I like it a lot. First I, off, I like it, I like yeah. it as a, like a story title, mm-hmm. as like an ongoing name of a character. I think it's far too clunky. It's the same with Martian Manhunter. I feel there are names that are genuinely just like too long to actually be workable. So as, as like a, as a character title, as a character name. So so well. So there's a couple of things here for me, particularly one. Depending on what kind of framework you have, adventures with Bucky, um, 
Bucky's code name being the Winter Soldier, if he's still doing some sort of military stuff or what work oh, sure, stuff sure. or that sort of thing. It makes sure. a lot of sense to me. Exactly. I yes. can also I, I get that. It's, it's when you right. basically have him in superhero context yes. that I think it's a problem. Now, and then I can see how he would want to shrug off that name, considering it was his code name when he was being used by sure. uh, the yeah. Russians to kill people. But that being said, one of the people that he killed when he wasn't quite in his right mind uh, was Jack Monroe, the previous nomad. So uh, unless they – it It's true. It would be weird for him to be like, and so that name's not being used anymore. Yeah. I'll just take it. I, that's true. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Nonetheless, I would happily, happily see someone come up with an alternate name for him than uh, Winter Soldier. I like Winter Soldier. I mean, I do. I just do. I think it's – you know, I think there was also kind of a thing of – it came out. I don't know. I just feel like there's so like, few. You just like it. You like it. There's nothing wrong with liking it. You don't have to explain yourself. No, I know. Oh, oh, I see. We're off to a good start for this enormous Mondo Q and A episode. I'm being, I'm being generous. I'm not I know. That I know. I know. I know. I'm, I know. I'm not meaning that in a mean <laughs> way at all. I know, but it sounded incredibly <laughs> defensive and a little mean. So I'm like, oh, this is this is gonna be. Kids, mommy and daddy are going to be fighting again. Go to your room. Uh, no, I, look, no, I fine. was, I was, I was meaning it in a completely nice way. I, I, like... I appreciate that, Graham. I appreciate that. I do. I was teasing you. Honest. It's, it's all good. It's all good. And thanks everyone for listening. That's all the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was going to warn you. I'm in a weirdly spazzy mood. So oh, good. that's always good when we have lots of questions for people to answer. I know. Well, hopefully it means that I'll motor mouth through them. I was also very worried that we weren't going to have enough questions. And of I, course, I also had that yeah. feeling, hey, which is why I put the call on Twitter. And then when I made, went to make the list, I was like, we have more than enough questions for two episodes, if not more, which I think, given how much we overtalk. Exactly, which I think is perfect. A two-part two Q&A followed by a Drock, because I got to say, I was I was sweating balls over the idea that we would be talking about Drock in, in just a week. <laughs> I was like, I haven't even started reading this. Like, Yeah, we could do Drock in two weeks. That'll be oh, fine. thank Wait, God. But I was going to say, can we say the other thing that we were going to do and it's now been delayed, but it's actually going to happen and we're really excited about it? Or no. should we wait until it's actually happening? App actually happening. I can okay. see it falling through in a lot of All ways. I'm going to say is this, what nuts. There's an idea that Jeff had for a 10th anniversary celebration episode that both of us were really excited about, honestly also thought was impossible. Yeah. And it might not be impossible, yeah. but it also won't happen this month. That's right. So we are very much of the, you like, oh, there's something arguably great going to happen. Yeah. But it's happening this month. So if we do two Q&A episodes, I think that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I think that would be perfect. Exactly. Exactly. So, but and also, then we'll have it. something awesome happening, like in, I guess, late July or August, maybe? Yeah, that's, that's, we'll see how things roll out. But my hope is if we can get that in July, that would be a huge... I'm very excited and more than a little terrified by it, I have to say. Oh, no, exactly. Uh, yeah, all, all that we will say, whatnots, is that if it happens, mm -hmm. it will be something that we've never done before. That's right. And also the most Wait What episodes you can imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll we'll see how this goes. 
I, I told you about my other thing that I, I keep toying with, which is, and this is probably just, <laughs> it's just my desire to relax and have a good weekend, which is, I thought it would be really cool. <laughs> cool is not the right word. It's the opposite word of cool. I thought it would be a fun idea if I proceeded to get high and we had this podcast. I wanted to just go full Kevin Smith and like, you know, like maybe take like a smoke, uh, a vape thing every half an hour. So at the end of like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not 90 being, minutes. I'm not being sarcastic here, but I'm genuinely surprised if this is you saying that you've been completely sober for all the podcasts we've done. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I've never, I, 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 I fully understand, but no, I didn't think, I thought I would be too much of a mess. The closest that I came of, uh, to, I think, which I believe the um, anyone listening would be like, oh, of course. I think I told you, Graham, not the listeners. I was very high when I recorded that post Portland report. Yes. yes. And there were there was a time or two where I think after I heard there was a couple of times. I was just saying there, there was at least one like prescription painkiller. Yes, exactly. There were prescription yeah. painkillers, but that was. For honest to God, back I mean that pain, was not, like actual, yeah, that yeah, was not recreational like, use. Yeah, 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 and that was also hellish. I think, I think being I, high I would be fun. Like you, I seem yeah. to remember you like freaked out about that. Yeah, well, because I, I was just significantly dumb, uh, and you know, you, you are a very intelligent guy and very quick witted, and I normally have I'm, to. I'm sorry, like, no, this is Jeff, true. I'm Jeff, serious. For this for this tenth anniversary month. Of, of podcasts, we're going to throw down. When it comes to the smarts in this podcast, I'm not the one doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> you are you okay. are very sweet, but that is – I <laughs> totally disagree, Graham. Also, you're, you are speedy as hell, so there are plenty of times where I'm hustling to keep up. And man, when I was on that Percocet, you'd just be like, so blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, oh. Fuck me! I'm gonna need like another 15 seconds to process that, you know. So, but it's very, it's very kind of you. By the way, I should mention. I assume you saw on Twitter. Actually, we got I think a Twitter, one or two tweets, and maybe an email that mentioned. And I think this is fabulous that someone was able to look in one of their podcast programs, maybe Overlook or some other program that actually. Oh yeah, sounds we're, like we're a video nearing. Game. 400 episodes 397 episodes when you add everything together this is which means this is 398 yep yep right so, yeah. which means net which means the next draw could be episode 400 that's right oh Isn't that great man. yeah yeah that's that's weird jeff i know i know it's <laughs> that's weird jeff very scary but also pretty great so uh, yeah, so I'm I'm super super happy about that. And the weird part is, I'm weirdly happy and excited about it because um, it means our average has been so high over the ten years. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's that's like I mean, average that is forty episodes of he- a year, yeah. which is kind of nuts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. So it's I mean it's. It puts us in the, I was thinking we were in the, well, we're almost pretty much three episodes a month to solidly in the three, you know, three and change a month uh, uh, per month over 10 years. That's uh, staggering. And someone also told, mentioned that the average episode time was 110 minutes, which again, 
Not surprising I, 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 anyone. Yeah, again, not surprising, but, but also, oh, God. You know what I literally just thought as well? What? If you add up the, the, the Baxter bungalows and the other audio we've done on the Patreon. Yeah. We're over 400. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Edie pointed oh, that out. Man. Yeah, so... Numbering. What is numbering? So I thought I thought that was pretty exciting. Uh, See, this is where I wish we could just like add in audio because you could add in the the number count from Sesame Street. Oh yeah, yeah, it's totally numbering. Trans- what is numbering? Much better if you do it, if you imitate it, than us actually getting it. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. No, no, no. I'm like, this is great. I thought I was going to be the hyper spazzy one. So this is excellent. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but I moved things around in our... I, I did. Okay. Uh, yes. and, and this part I may edit out. Oh, no. I mentioned it in the in the email, I think. Which was that. Yeah, okay. Good. Okay. Excellent. So uh, should we start plowing through them or no? I think we most definitely should. Right. We have we have a lot of questions, and also Jeff. Maybe it's just me. A lot of these questions are. Uh, first of all, they're all great, but a lot of them are more in depth than I expected. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. No. No. Like, no. Like I through, I was like, I feel we could like do an episode just a couple of these questions. Oh, completely. Because some of them are go so deep. So it's some of them. I think will. Will be us. Hopefully, we'll dash through a couple, and others will go like horrifically long. Uh, I should mention, like, I also feel like, uh, again, in that weird um, being very hyper today. I think my emotions also were very ping pongy. Uh, in that, at first, when I saw sort of the first sort of batch or round of questions, I began assembling them. I was kind of like, oh man, there's a lot of. There's a lot of what I would call market analysis questions, which mm-hmm. which makes sense. But I was also kind of like, wow, is that really what we do? Is that the primary thing that we do here now? And I, I think there's a case to be made for that, actually. Um, like my, I, think, I think we're both wonks, but it's mm-hmm. not all that we do. I don't think so either, but I wonder if it's – so at first I was like – I was – I. I was like, oh, but this is how we're perceived. But then as questions kept coming in, we got a lot more like, you know, what's what do you think Batman's favorite breakfast cereal is? And I thought that that was a relief. So um, Batman's favorite breakfast cereal is, of course, Special K. <laughs> um, someone asks a question and I'm just going to skip ahead because this is not a question that uh, we're probably going to get to in this episode. Mm-hmm. But someone, David M. asked, who was Scott Free's mom? And all I'm going to say is that that might have sent me to Google. Mm, yeah, I was hoping you would cover that because I'm like, and ah, I can't all I'm going to say is this: spoilers. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Scoffrey is a mother. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, no, it is weird, isn't it? Um, yeah, because we know who Ryan's is. We mm-hmm. like we've seen a Ryan's mother. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. that that really is jumping ahead. Jeff, shall we shall we just run through them in the order we put in the in the Google Doc? I think we should. Yeah, let's go with. Would that. you like me to start? Uh, sure. Why don't you? Matthew and Anna from Patreon ask. I left this as a comment on the last truck episode, but I'll ask it again here. 
Do you think there have been any comics that have been effective at capturing the idea of punk? There have been a few titles in recent years that have been, at least on the surface, example in the title, about punk, but none of them seem even remotely like the punk scene slash community slash ideas that I'm familiar with. Why do you think this might be? Could it be at least in part just the idea of punk within the minds of these people writing the comics, still being stuck in the 60s and 70s? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give this, I'll give this one a tackle, um, and I'll sort of go in, uh, reverse order. Yeah, I do think that the idea of punk, uh, is that part of the problem is, is that the people writing comics being stuck in the sixties and seventies, I think, I think in many ways, there's a lot of people who are just, how do I put it? weren't necessarily punk even when punk was a thing yeah. you know yeah. um like, very hung up with like the uh like stereotype of punk yeah also i think that there's a lot to be said for the idea that the punk ethos at least at least as as i understand it and i feel like this is a huge caveat is saying that i am i was not punk i was heavily attracted to it and especially oh lord the, are you? The women yeah well so no so here's the thing i was i i was super super attracted to uh androgynous women so i, I mean i still am so that was like a huge draw like women with mohawks was like but but on the other hand punk i i was never i was basically a moody kind of barbiturate music person or a happy poppy person so i totally missed and really just could not engage with any of the quote-unquote angrier or more confrontational music you know it just it just never ever worked for me so so i could never really make that jump i so i very much admired it from afar so like i said i feel that all this how about you grant before i jump in on this maybe well, I, you've got what's a funny is like i'm like i feel like i was too young for punk yeah that would make sense because, because for me i've got to be honest punk is primarily like you know 75 through like 80 yeah. something yeah early exactly 80s. do you know what i mean i'm mm-hmm. like i was one in 75 yeah right exactly. you know um so I, I I feel like I didn't get to participate in like the I also feel like there's British punk and American punk yeah um, and I think they're very different things yes like I I maybe this is me being a snob maybe this, maybe this is me showing my age whatever but like when I hear people describe Green Day as punk oh yeah that's hard for I'm me always, too I'm but like, yeah mm-hmm. oh not, no mm-hmm. I mean ish you know like i i can't like that's like a mental leap i can't make right but i feel like there is i feel like there's very different ideas of what punk is Mm -hmm. which complicates this question considerably yeah absolutely yeah like the the part about you know is the idea of punk still stuck within in the 60s and 70s i'm honestly like well sure it is because then like the quote-unquote punk attitude moved on to other things Mm -hmm. right you know what I mean? Like, I, I, there's more of the what I'd consider punk attitudes in like early hip hops than in like eighties punk. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I, I, right. No. 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 Absolutely. And we, you know. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. No. And I was going to say, like, there is the there's a whole Green Day Blink One Eighty Two version of punk that I tend to completely overlook that I don't think necessarily 
has a thing uh, like a component quote, quote, yeah and then, like you know, there's an entire subset of our listeners who are like fuck you yeah. i mean maybe not maybe not blink 182 but like right. like green day i i think can uh no you really can because a, no but like make a legitimate claim yes. to being like third wake wave punk or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like at blink 182 no yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like going like, well, Smash Mouth, if you think about it. Right. Somebody once told them that the world was going to roll them, and that's really punk. You know? <laughs> I, but like Green Day, I, I, I have a, a, a little bit more yeah. affinity for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but again, this is me being this – is, this is my snobbery. Right. So – but, but it also makes this question difficult for me because like I'm like, maybe uh, my version of punk is still stuck in the 60s and 70s. Right. So so I'm going to give this one with caveats. I'm going to try and give it a roll and then you can either agree or disagree uh, or or pass depending. But what I would say is, is that, you know, I think part of the reason why there's sort of a skip over comics being punk is generally – particularly on this podcast, but I think, you know, and the people who listen to us in general, I think there's a strong tendency when we say comics, you know, we're of course talking primarily about the big two with some expansion out into some of the more mainstream alt and indie comics. And I would say there's a strong case to be made that my understanding of American punk, uh, early American punk is it's a very, very anti-corporate ethos. So I think you're not going to get a lot of that in, for example, Marvel or DC. Exactly. But you will get a strong amount of that. And I think there was a strong amount of that in the black and white comics. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. there's a really good case to be made that for, for me, the best and almost all of my definition of punk comes from Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers, Mm -hmm. which I think is the most solidly rooted in punk i mean they they came out of the oxnard california punk scene of the early 80s and late 70s and so but on top of that i would say that there's a there's a framework within fanographics at the time where between them and dan Klaus and peter bag i was gonna um, say peter bag especially yeah yeah that i i see um arguably the 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 most uh, accessible and still easily attainable version of of punk comics would be through the fanographic artists and because they owned their own rights and fanographics worked primarily as a publisher that gave them some small advances and mostly were primary about selling their books and keeping them in print were the closest that we can think of, but there are a lot of last gasp had a strong punk component The the black and white zine phase, which led into the mini comics phase has a very strong punk component. I think if you well, look at the, but that's yeah, sorry. I was going to say like, that's just it. Like, you know, you can look, it depends what your definition of punk is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like when you get into like the, 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 the small press explosion of the, of the 80s, the Black Mike explosion in the 80s, yeah. that is punk insofar as, like, it mirrors the punk music scene. Mm-hmm. The idea, like, anyone can do this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that you just need, like, a reasonable distribution service to get your work out. Yeah. So that sort of DIY 
ethos. I feel that the uh, the the Fort Thunder scene that that emerged in the late '90s is was very punk. Of course, someone like James Kolshaka is very um, punk in 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 his super. Uh, DIY ethos, but also he made very strong advocacy, uh, case for advocating against craft, which I mm-hmm. think is something that you can think of as a very heavily punk ethos. So, so that's the stuff that I think of. I do believe that there are dudes like uh, everything that I see from, say, Rick Remender, I feel that Remender would very much be the first to jump up and and claim a punk, yeah, the heritage. Yeah, exactly. no, I, I think you're right. Yeah, um, like for me, I, I look at things like Deadline, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. Strange Days, like Milligan's, a, a lot of like the Milligan stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's it? God, what's the, the superhero character from Strange Days? Parallax. Oh, I was going to say Johnny Nemo. That's not. I mean, yeah, yeah, but uh, right. you know, a lot of the the deadline stuff. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like a lot of the 2008 stuff. As much as like this subject came about with us being like, Judge Dredd is like a weirdly non-punk. Right. You know, it's weirdly surface punk. Like, but a lot of the early, the early, early 2008 stuff. Yeah, feels very. Um, I, I, you know, almost outsider art-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like art brute type stuff that that sort of feels punky to me, right? You well, know, like it, it, they sort of that, but again, it gets into the the um, what is punk, the definition right. of what is punk. You know, I was going to say one of the things that I think, and I'm so glad that you brought it up, is I've always felt, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but a huge difference between British punk and American punk is. There's a huge core of British punk that is ironic, you know, is is very knowing. Uh, and I and so I feel that in a way, the areas where um, 2000 A.D. Uh, ends up most paralleling punk is when there's a similar cheeky nihilism in it. And yes. And, yeah. and I feel like the I, the cheek is important in in the British a lot of a strong stripe of British punk that I feel is mostly uh, missing from American punk, which I feel is tries to dig very heavily for quote unquote sincerity. You know. Yes. Yes. And, and I feel that this is going to come off poorly, and I'm going to upset a lot of people saying this. <laughs> I feel that American punk was much more concerned with an aesthetic and an idea of sincerity than British punk was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel British punk was much more about the it like it it really doesn't fucking matter as long as you you just show up and do the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was more of a purity test aspect to American punk. Mm-hmm. But a purity test sort of based on the have you listened to the right records? Are you do you look right? Right. Well, I mean, and, and, and you know, I I might be being I I was going to say I might be being too harsh. I am almost certainly being too harsh. Like uh-huh. I'm not part of the American punk scene. There's probably nuances I am nowhere near aware of. Right. Well, of course, um, that's where but, things but really not, start yeah. splitting off a lot. But, but nonetheless, yeah. yeah, yeah. My thing is, it's very easy because. McLaren's 
invention of punk was very much presented in a, you know, again, the deliberate cynicism was part of that cheeky nihilism, you know, and, and I feel by contrast, there was a lot of American stuff that, because a lot of us miss that, there was a smart ass thing that, that happened with American punk, but it was still um, very much um, embodied and aching for a certain amount of sincerity, you know, that anyway, so that's, that's, I think the best answer that, that, uh, Matthew yeah, and Anna are going to get yeah. from us considering the best the answer we're going to get. Yeah. yeah, I think so. But we, we threw some names out there, fanographics, and then if you start digging, but yeah, I think it would be hard. Like, I mean, I think, I do think of, if you look at, how do I put it? It's that weird thing of like, Again, I start seeing people like the 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 quote unquote snottiness of someone like Grant Morrison or Mark Miller early enough in their careers or, you know, even threading through that as a very punk conception of things, but more well, sure. British like, I, punk I, than Yes, American. but I think like, you know, you look at Morrison's stuff in the nineties mm-hmm. and, you know, the Invisibles is very um poser punk mm-hmm. but still doesn't quite manage to be punk like right. kill your boyfriend does well or since you know, swithin's day or right? since, since swithin's day arguably more so right yeah yeah but you know i feel that um invisibles is the one that would claim to be punk if mm-hmm. that makes sense mm-hmm. and yet is the one that is the least punk yeah yeah well i, I could I I think in that sense, sort of the way that, you know, for me, one of the things that keeps Morrison relatively interesting and worth still picking up, it has a lot to do with his, um, he'll become, he'll become punk even about punk, you know, like at a certain point, I feel like in Invisibles, his original idea ends up evolving into something that moves beyond that. And then it becomes a more complex idea by sort of shrugging off a lot of punk like dichotomies yes. that you throw yeah. in there. Yeah. You know, yep. so yep. I, know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So anyway, so I think, I think that's as good as you're going to get and, or a huge case to be made for people pillaring us. Uh, on internet comments. Let's go with and because, like, like I, Jeff, I don't think either of us would claim to be punk, right? No, no I think I think. And exactly. also, to be brutally honest, mm-hmm. like, I'm 44 and you're 51. Mm-hmm. Like, if we, I honestly think if we claim to be punk, we should be pilloried even more. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, uh, maybe that's because I, I live in San Francisco, but. Where I see that's even more reason to be feeling <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because I do think that there there are up. I mean, I think it was relatively recently that the the anarchist bookstore was still open on Hate Street, and I read it. I read an excellent book by Gordon Edgar called Cheesemonger, and he is uh, he is the guy who is the cheesemonger at uh, Rainbow Grocery. Uh, which is uh, one of the is a very is San Francisco's largest and I think possibly only cooperative grocery and his talk about that is very much he came into it via punk 
to to work at Rainbow and then it would you know ended up doing the cheese stuff and then falling in love with cheese and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I still take him very much at his word that the way that punk stuff tends to morph is I feel there's a very strong backbone of anarchist and collectivist action being taken place by people in the 40s and 50s. They may not be listening to punk, you know what I mean? But they're still, I think they still identify that way. You know? Mm, yeah, no, you're right. I like part of me is just like, yeah, but like anarchist and collective action is not does not equal punk. Do you know what I mean? Like they're they're not the same thing. There's a lot of crossover. Right. Like, those Venn diagrams are, are, you know Right. Very close. But yeah, there's something where I'm just like, but they're not the same. Well, anyway, no, they're not. But I would say I just become the, yes. the punk podcast. I just wanted to say that I feel there's ways to be 50 plus and consider yourself punk in a way that doesn't deserve you to just be like shoved into the street. So, but maybe that's me because I'm old. So, uh, super context. Uh, I'm going to read this one. I'm curious what your take is on several newish comics publishers that have arisen in the last couple of years. I'm specifically thinking of companies like Action Lab, Aftershock, Black Mask, Lionforge, TKO, and Vault. The recent Lionforge Oni acquisition probably has a connection to this. While promoting creator-owned work, they seem to be mainly backed by venture capital investments, despite the small percentage of the market that remains for them to make a return on. I don't often hear you guys talk about the book, so I'm curious if you're reading them. What do you think about their chances for success? How do you think they're affecting the industry? And finally, what do you think differentiates them from one another? Uh, thanks for the show. I look forward to listening every week. I am going to go in reverse order mm-hmm. and say I don't think enough differentiates them from one another. And I think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I have. I've read a bunch of stuff from the various companies you talk about. Right. And uh, the one that stands out the most out of the ones you listed, Action Lab, Aftershock, Black Mask, Line, Forge, TKO, and Vault, is TKO. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly because TKO's format and release is different. Yeah. TKO is the one who basically you buy directly from them online and you can buy either a box set of single issues, which I don't know if you've gotten any, Jeff, but are oversized comics. No. They're not oh, comic interesting. size. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, or you can buy a trade. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's the release format. And that's interesting to me. And buying directly from the publisher is interesting to me. Um, it's also feels very sneaky in a way, if that, for want of a better way of putting it, <laughs> well, it's it's if you buy directly from them and they bypass the drag market or any other distribution source, mm-hmm. right? You will never get an idea of how successful they are. Sure. Like it's Netflix. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? How mm-hmm. successful is any Netflix show? Who knows? Only Netflix knows, and so Netflix can claim anything as a hit or anything as a failure. Right. You know, and and I get that from TKO, and I think that's just the nature of what they're doing mm-hmm. like I, I i think that it might be a byproduct it might it might be a bug not a feature um but honestly like there's stuff that aftershock publishes that vault could publish there's stuff that vault publishes the black mask could publish there's stuff that lion force forge publishes that you know, again like aftershock or vault could do um they have things that they think differentiate themselves from each other black mask i would argue like it's incredibly self-consciously political mm-hmm. um uh you know aftershock i think is more 
Uh, I, oh, I was going to say something that would get me in trouble with Aftershock again, so I'm not going to say it. Great. I, no, at one point I said something in THR about Aftershock, and it led to like a lot of people Aftershock being really upset at me. Really? Wow. And I, I like upset in a nice way. Not, like, angry as much as, like, why would you say that? Like, genuinely, why would you say that? Wow. Um, and I'm, so I'm just not going to go there again. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but I, I, I'm not, I think a lot of the uh, differentiators in these companies are much more in companies' minds mm-hmm. than in the, their output, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, I think that's a problem, honestly. Uh, but then I'm also the person who thinks that there's arguably too many publishers in in the drag market, mm-hmm. and that something like Land for Joni was handled, I mean, astonishingly badly. Mm-hmm. But I would not be incredibly upset if other publishers didn't merge, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and and had had stronger catalogs and a stronger presence. Mm-hmm. To, um. Do you read any of these books? I have to say, uh, for the most part, I don't. And um, it's this is one of the the questions that I think kind of threw me because I think a, a prime a prime example of this would be our discussion about Valiant from probably about fifty episodes or so ago, where it was like. I liked everything that Valiant was doing back when they were, you know, under their previous owners at the time, uh, in terms of the, the way they paid, the way they collected, the, you know, their approach to their universe. But I just didn't have enough fondness for the characters or the books that stick. Um, and, in some ways, I feel that that is very much the case with a lot of, the other like these are imprints i know that i should support them particularly tko that was like pick up all the trades at once pick up the you know it's like the trade comes out and all the issues and it's in print or you can get it digitally first issues only digitally is always free yeah. or whatever and also there's some there's some genuinely great creators doing work for tko is there i guess yes i i think dan mcdade is great I, dan, I'm so dan mcdade dan, is great like yeah, absolutely. seeing roxanne gay doing an original concept yeah wonderful sure you know yeah. seeing joshua dicer doing a comic about uh homelessness in la mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. like i i do i think i think there's work there to support Right. But honestly, I think there's work there to support in Vault. I think there's work there to support in Aftershock. I think there's work there to support in Black right. But also, and again, this is something that's just going to make people mad at me. I think there isn't enough work at each publisher there to support a publisher. Well, but that's, I mean, that's, you can only do so much in that regard. You know what I mean? Like, apart from spreading out, like... The comics industry is small, and uh, there's despite the fact that there's many, many people trying to get into it, the level of talent that is required on the one hand, and I also feel like the discretion and the connections of the editors, um, I, I just feel like public also the the sad fact of the matter is is that publishers the comic industry as it's set up and this will get this is comes up in a, a later question although whether we answer it in this episode or not is that the real problem with the way the comics industry is set up and has always been set up is it's about grinding things out on the margin you know so 
having twice the overhead of editorial or whatever is, you know, it, it's like you've got it. You, people are trying to find the sweet spot where it's like you crank out a bunch of titles that make a little bit of money in the hopes of finding the one title that makes a lot of money. But the trick is, is that you don't necessarily want to lose money. And I feel that uh, because because of the venture capital nature that might be lurking behind some or all of these publishers, I think that really means that there's a lot of people who don't want to carve up what is a very small pie uh, up at the top. So then you start getting more publishers opening up their own branches or more people who are like, oh, I want a piece of this of the, this property yeah you know? well I, I mean that's just it i i not throwing aspersions there are yeah uh, at least three publishers on that list of there which i strongly suspect exist mostly so people can sell media options yeah right sure um and so they can control media options and so they can they can they can garner interest in movies or televisions right and on one hand fine mm-hmm. go to town Mm-hmm. Like I hope it means a great payday for for whoever is involved. Um, but you know that's something also. I don't know. There's something that, about that that makes me uncomfortable. Sure. I guess. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, I know I haven't said it on the podcast, and I'm fairly sure I have told you off off the record, Jeff. Um, I've talked to to someone who is heading up a publisher that hasn't launched yet, but but is intending to launch, where. Their business model doesn't involve them finding any success with the comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The business model is we will be successful if we basically publish enough intellectual property that some of it gets adapted for for yeah. other media. Right, right. Um, and and they've been like when I've spoken to them again, all of this is off the record, so I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to like say who it is or, or anything. But these are people who know comics. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And they're up front. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who are funding this company mm-hmm. do not care mm-hmm. if we have a hit comic. Mm-hmm. They care if we can produce something that can be adapted. Yeah. And honestly, when we talk about venture capital involvement in the comic industry, I don't think that that company I'm talking about is the only company. I think they're just the only ones to be upfront and to say it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so as well. I think so as well. Now, so so for me, I think that there are there's there's two problems. And uh, sorry, how do I put this? There's the problem that I have which why I don't engage with this material for the most part, which is for the most uh, is by and large I shop and read digitally. Without a comic shop owner or comic shop employees to give me a curated experience and point me in the right direction. Like when I even going into comics experience every so often and having like uh, three kids walk into a bank uh, be the pick of the week or, Mm -hmm. you know, I actually think I might've seen it in some other range or area, but, um, but very close to that sort of experience. It's, it's if you don't have the if you don't have the curated comic book shop experience, then you end up with the um, rec- needing essentially 
comics news slash criticism yes. online, which I feel like this week has been a big discussion about how there's not enough of that and how there's more of a need of it. And, and also in a way people making nostalgia noises for departed outlets and people going, Hey, damn it. You can't just do that. You know, you've got to look for, there are new outlets here that you need to look at and support, you know? Well, it's also like, I, this speaks to, I think an unspoken thing in super Mm -hmm. context question, which is, we are an outlet that theoretically could be recommending this absolutely material. absolutely you know, and we're not we're not engaging in it yeah or and... or that's not even true like because i am engaging it it's just i don't talk about it or recommend it right. and in some cases because honestly i don't think it's worthy of that mm-hmm. i have read uh, again it's, i'm not going to name names to 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 insult people but like i've read an, a lot of material from the publishers named mm-hmm. where I just wouldn't recommend it. Right. No, like, and I, I totally I, get that. I just wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I don't think it's good enough. Yeah. Or I don't think it's unique enough. I don't think it's special enough. Right. To recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also there's little stuff that is like uh, probably fine, but not my taste. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this weird thing where I think on some level, like we, specifically you and me, mm-hmm. have uh, a duty is probably far too strong responsibility yeah to at least be aware of this stuff but mm-hmm. again where does our responsibility like how how responsible are we i guess because you know should we talk about like should we stick to what we like should we go outside our comfort zone right you know like it's 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 a thing. Well, I uh, mean, I yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm jumping in to basically pick up those reins because I've been very aware of it. In a way, I wish we could um, uh, weave this in because I was this was on my brain where someone asked about when writers and artists peak and if our if we think we've peaked and things like that. And uh, I know that for myself, one of the things that's been a challenge is that we've been doing this for 10 years like 10 years ago i had 23 plus long boxes of comics i went to the comic book store you know i worked you know three 10 hour days so i went to the comic book store pretty much every week and i did that for or at least every other week for a huge huge chunk of time i i have very few print comics now i mostly read in digital uh when I was at Comics Experience working behind the counter, I made a strong effort to get myself reading manga and I like it. And I feel like at a certain point for me, there was there was a bit of a pivot where it's like, if I'm not feeding my, you know, own nostalgia slash checking in with the characters at the big two that I still have whatever with slash follow the creators at same, um, there just ends up being not a lot of time to really dig into these other publishers, especially because it mean because for me, I'm not on, it, it might be something very different if I was on everybody's PDF list, but because I'm uh, not. Speaking, speaking of someone who is on a lot of PDF well, lists. Well, no, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say is like, what happens is 
I find you read less. Yeah. Because you get overwhelmed by everything. I believe it. I mean, that's how... Uh... Like, right now, I have, I mean, a metric ton of PDFs. Yeah. Waiting to be read. Right. And and they're not being read. Yeah. And they're not being read for like multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. There's only so much you can read, first of all. Right. I have to I have to read for pleasure at some point. Mm-hmm. Like I have to. Right. And honestly, this stuff is not reading for pleasure. Right. This stuff is work. Yeah. But also there's always more pressing work to be done. You know, if I'm interviewing someone, I have to read their comic. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? If I um uh, if I am, uh, you know, breaking news about a comic being launched, I have to read that comic. Mm-hmm. If whatever, like, there's more pressing things to read for work always. Mm-hmm. So you really do run into a, I'd like, uh, if there was another two days in the week, mm-hmm. sure, right, great, I'd love to talk about this stuff. Sure, but there's really not, and. I, I keep on wanting to like bitch one particular publisher on this list. I'm not <laughs> um, but you know, there's 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 a lot of these publishers who are putting stuff out that honestly just doesn't appeal to me, mm-hmm. like almost on any level. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have a responsibility to check them out, sure. Mm-hmm. But like, I'll read an issue, mm-hmm. and then if that issue does nothing for me, or I think it's bad. I, I have countless other things to read. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, no, very much so. For myself, I, I and I'm sort of the same. I really, uh, I mean, at a greatly diminished level, which is to say I've got a bunch of PDFs loaded up in Goodreader that I haven't touched, even some that I want to. And usually I feel if I spend the money on it, that, that gives me a little more skin in the game. I'm more like, okay. And so I went through a period where when Comixology on the new releases, I would make it a point after I went through the majority of the the big five or big seven publishers, try and dig through other releases and pick up some Comixology submit books. And I just I just haven't been doing that because I because I myself have managed to hit um, peak comics like peak comic streaming like. Now that I'm kind of like am hooked on a series. Oh, plus, I'll be honest, like, I mean, admittedly, this is only the last four months. But when we switch from doing Baxter building to doing Drock, oh, my God, it's like so much more reading. It's incredibly enjoyable. And I'm learning on this whole section. But the idea that I can make time to start picking up again, other publishers and, and even spending the time trying to dig through and see like, Oh, this looks interesting. That doesn't look interesting. Huh? What's going on there. That's something that I will make, take the time to do with the, in the manga new releases section every week in comiXology, even if it's two or three screens deep. And, but I'm not doing it with the other comics releases um, that are Comixology Submit and other self-publishers. And and I think, you know, all of the, the ones listed here by Super Context. And I have to admit, I do. I On the one hand, I feel guilty about it. On the other hand, I'm also aware of like, I, I kind of can't do it and I can't provide that focus for it. So 
so yeah, uh, I think their chances for success. I think what's hard is it depends on how they're defining success. I think right. that that if there's their definition of success is get a book that is going to be purchased, um, you know, a property that's going to get adapted into another medium and they're going to get a big payout. I would say they've got a good enough chance if they keep grinding at it long enough. I mean, we really do have to remember, God, I was going to say Cowboys versus Aliens, you know, like it's just those those things can happen. But but if you're defining it in terms and for people who are creators who are like they're getting paid so therefore they're considered professionals they can get the experience or they can build a name for themselves like we saw happen to say Matthew Rosenberg over at Black mm-hmm. Mask for example i think sure or Donny Cates over aftershock right know? exactly you know some really some people who really have stood out and created careers uh, for themselves and i think that too is a level of success but in the idea of it moving the dial in terms of how the marketplace, like what the direct marketplace is composed of, or yeah, I I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I just, it I just don't. seems unlikely. It's it's uh, hard. I am going to really quickly before we move on uh, list some titles uh, from various publishers that people might want to check out. If you do just want to check out a title, mm-hmm. um, TKO, I really enjoyed the fearsome Doctor Fang, and I really enjoyed Goodnight Paradise. Mm-hmm. Vault, I really enjoyed Friendo. Uh, Aftershock World Reader is a book that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lion Forge is just about genderqueer, which I really liked. Um, I'm not on the list for a publisher, um, but Ahoy Comics. Mm-hmm. I read this past week the Captain Ginger comics. Did you Did you know about Captain Ginger? No. It's Stuart Moore and June Brigman. And Jeff, the closest way I can describe it is it's Kirby's Captain Victory, but they're all cats. <laughs> And it's kind of great. Wow. wow. Like, it's legitimately really fun. Because mm-hmm. it's, 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 like, it's, it's at once the joke you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, the villains aliens are called the lumens that are flashing lights to drive the cats mad. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. But it's also, I mean, pretty much Captain Victory. Like, Kirby's Captain Victory. Mm. <laughs> at the same time, you're like, this, this, like shouldn't work and kind of doesn't work, but also kind of really does. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there's some titles from from very smaller publishers to 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 conjure with. Uh, you mentioned three kids walking into a bank or five kids walking into a bank yes. from Black Mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd also throw that in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's there is a uh, like uh, almost each of this, the, these publishers that we're talking about have put out quality work, mm-hmm. like completely have that is worth checking out. Um, it's just that. There are a lot, and they are also putting out work that is not so great. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think if you pick up the wrong book, you'll be like, "Well, that publisher isn't for me," and that's kind of sad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so anyway, those are some titles I like from those. Great. Dan Mackay asks, and Jeff, feel free to say no to this. <laughs> uh, I've always been a bit curious about Jeff's day job, but I feel he's been carefully quiet. So, barring any more details, I'll just thank you guys for everything with words rather than just dosh. Uh, I don't know if that's a question or not. It is. It, it's I, I, honestly like I feel weird about you talking about your job. <laughs> well, okay, let me talk about it 
within this framework for, and maybe this will help people. Maybe it, it won't. I, I work for a law firm. I'm in, I, unlike a lot of people, I say a lot, but you know, I, I'm thinking of people like Abbe and Joe McCulloch who are attorneys, uh, and, and also write I about comics. Know, I didn't know Joe was an attorney. Anyway. I, maybe he's not anymore. Maybe I'm misunderstanding that, but I could have sworn that I saw a thing and assumed that was it. And there's, there's been like, I feel like some other comics journal writers from previous generations. I, I honestly love the idea that like the, the comics journal is made up of lawyers. Yeah. Well, cause I, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, ah, being joke. And you know, I like the idea yeah. that it's like, you know, it's it's like a lawyer intelligentsia. There's something about that that I'm like, <laughs> okay, sure. So uh, and 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 or maybe maybe others. I'm not one of those. I work in in a support staff position for a long time. I worked uh, a, a a delicious and wonderful three day work week, three ten hour days. So I had four days off, which gave me a lot of time to. Uh, edit podcasts and uh, then as everyone I think knows I changed my position I'm now the manager of the department that I was worked in um, and it's been mostly I think a hugely positive move it, I don't think it could have been it it literally I, I, was the I'm best it to, could turn I, out I'm going to interrupt Jeff mm -hmm. here to say that uh, as Jeff's friend but also an outsider to your work mm-hmm um, the, your switch in position mm -hmm. has been really good for you. Yeah, yeah. Like I think it's been something that has been really fulfilling to mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. and something that you've gotten a lot out of. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You've also lost a lot of free time. Yeah, I lost a lot, uh, and, and, yeah, and a lot exactly. of brain space. To yeah. be honest. Yep. Um, but I think that you've like I really do think that it's been really good for you. And oh, and you. as as your friend and someone who loves you, I think it's actually like it's something I I'm really in favor of. Ah, I well, I appreciate it. And I do appreciate that I remember talking to you very specifically about my worries and decision to take the job and you were incredibly supportive not just in the uh oh, I think this would be good for you, which I appreciated, but you were also you will be very good at this, which was um, which was a big inspiration because that was also something that I was very afraid of. These days, I feel that for the most part, I would give myself very high marks uh, for the position, like in the sense of, yeah, there. I think I definitely feel like there are days where a lot of days I'm like, yeah, they're lucky to have me. I'm good at this. Uh, uh, how much it's like, ah, oh, and this is what I want to be doing is like, that's very variable, but there are days where it's, where it is very satisfying. And, um, I, I would say on a, on a day to day, pound to pound basis, much more so than say, probably the last several years before I made that transition. And I think, Hopefully that gives everyone some context without being super, I, it, super it, specific. It, yeah, it gives – like it lets people know enough. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like I, I'm weirdly – I think I'm arguably more reticent about you talking about it than you are. <laughs> what, what, is there a reason why you're reticent? Like is there uh, – Mostly that uh, – it's a, it's a combination of 
I don't think it's anyone's business but yours. Mm, mm -hmm. And I don't want you to say anything that could get you in trouble. Yeah, I think ultimately that's my big fear is is that as everyone's seen, by putting yourself out there on the internet, there is a chance that you can end up um, uh, aggrieving a, a person who has a large group or a huge group of people and suddenly everything you've ever put out on the internet is being weaponized against you and that yeah, yeah. I, I, and I just like I don't that makes me really uncomfortable yeah you know well uh, but I, and I you know don't get me wrong yeah I, I do not think that's Tan's reason for asking right. I don't think that anyone listening would do that sure it's more just that I don't know it, it's it's uh, it feels part of your private life. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's clearly not. It's your job. But you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, there, I feel like there, there, there should and can be a demarcation between podcast Jeff and work Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm like nine million more times leery about posting, tweeting anything about work, even though there's huge amounts of time. I think there was a point there where I was like, yeah, I'm going to get an account on dark and just tweet about work. And for the most part, I make it a point not to like, I think the few things that I have tweeted about work have just been generically Dilbert-esque enough that nobody's going to be like, oh, you no, you get the hell out of this place now. You're, you're... Mild digression. Mm -hmm. There is someone we both know, and we both follow on Twitter, who has a dark account that it's really tweet about work. And it is simultaneously really dull and really incomprehensible to me. Yeah. And those two things are connected. If I understood what they were tweeting about, I'd probably be much more interested. But because I don't, yeah. I'm just like... The blah, blah, blah is the blah, blah, blah. I can't believe the blah, blah, blah is the blah, blah, blah. Is yeah. this important? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, I, and this is this is hard for me because I feel the thing that's tough is dark accounts are really what Twitter was like, what, ten, before, five, eight yeah, years before, ago yes, or something? Before Twitter became Twitter, yes. Yeah, before Twitter became Twitter. So I don't follow enough of them. I feel like I should have one and I would love to follow more because – for that reason of like, you really do get people um, talking about Honest. what they do. Yeah. And even the in, a, oh, shit, I'm applying for a new job and I'm nervous as fuck about it kind of thing like that. That to me is just, you know, it's great. And it's amazing how much of that has disappeared from the Twitterscape. I'm also shocked by like some of the because there's a lot understandably the the dark accounts are where people vent about twitter or about people on twitter that it's not worth venting about on main and that shit is is eye-opening as hell to me so um <laughs> which if only because People will say this like it's an absolutely 100% established fact and everyone else is like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I was just like, wait, really? Shit. Like there's such the idea of it's just I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's that comment about it being turtles all the way down, except instead of turtles, it's high school. So, you know, that's. That well, now I feel bad for just like being bitchy about people no i think it's i think it's good it's also natural but it's just and let's put it this way at a certain you know level if i was 
a cool kid as opposed to just a friend of the cool kid, I would probably be like, oh, this is great. But as it is, I'm just like, God, what the motherfuck did motherfuckers say about motherfucking me? Jesus. So, uh, and, and the fact is, most of the time, it's like absolutely nothing because they don't think of me at all. And that's almost a relief at this point. So... Uh, speaking of fun stuff like this, Dan White also asks, well, also Dan White, I was going to say also from Patreon. (laughs) I wasn't sure we spelled that out. Dan White asks, my question is what value do you think there is in engaging with problematic work or problematic creators? Uh, as the internet says, your mileage may vary. Yes. Yes, indeed. I think that's honestly what what value you think there is right right there's more than enough stuff out there that you can never engage with anyone you find problematic and your life will be utterly full mm-hmm. that's that's a good uh, way to put it but also if there's something where like you you are want to engage because you're curious or because you want to hate reads or or for whatever reason mm-hmm. then go to town it doesn't make you a bad person i also I, think there's a lot to be said to jump in is the keeping in mind and why or how you're engaging i think is important i mean god knows i think that there's a huge amount of people who read and engage with work with an idea toward like I'm a creator or one day I'll be a creator or I'm a creator in training. And I'm kind of, kind of a big fan of there's a difference to me about engaging. I think trying engaging in problematic work or problematic creators as a way, as, as an artist, as a creator who's trying to find your way in the world, I think, I would say that that is probably pretty necessary, although then it gets into that weird realm of creators defending super problematic work or super problematic creators. Yeah, and and part of it is also like, what does it mean to engage with problematic creators? Like, for example, I think like, you know, just harassing someone is is clearly a, a waste of your time. Yeah. Yeah, you know it. Uh, it as, as we're recording this, I don't know, Jeff, if you've seen this, um, the Chelsea Kane thing. Oh uh, yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, is just. Although, like, do you mind breaking it down as if I didn't, so the listeners are on top of it? So, and I'm not on top of this at all. This is mm-hmm. literally based on me seeing a few tweets. Yeah, it looks like Chelsea Kane in her Image comic series Man Eaters, in which women when they start menstruating become literal like werewolves and attack men um where cats i guess or yeah where cats i'm sorry yeah um that comic has been attacked as being uh trans exclusionary mm-hmm. uh, by many people online and to my admittedly not paying close attention to this i I thought that Kane had essentially like heard that and said, you're right, I need to be better about this. But then it turns out that in a recent issue, like the tweets that are criticizing her are literally being reproduced word for word mm-hmm. in background of the like panels. Yes. And I, okay, so I... Without like naming the, the, the original twi- right. uh, Twitter user... Um, and without any additional context. 
Uh, well, so the the thing that it, uh, this is again me just chiming in at, with the second hand thing. The first the first one is I got to pull a Roy Thomas and be like, oh, technically, where means man, so where women is man women, which was a problem back when Tigro was first introduced. So, like that 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 particular uh, explanation using Tigra as the as the like uh intro point for people was very Roy Thomas. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh just cuz I remember here's where I get more to Roy Thomas. I remember reading the editorial page of Giant Size Chillers number 1 Graham, which <laughs> which is where Tigra the Werewoman first appears <laughs> and Roy Thomas appears uh, ap- apologizes but it's also like, "Hey, uh so but my understanding is is the tweets appear without context in the background. This is a billboard slash presentation inside the concentration camp where the where the oh, see, I, characters I that. Yeah, it's the internment camps where the character the the cat characters when they're caught are thrown in there. So that's oh. yeah. That's the part where people are like, no, 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 no. Also, I do feel just because of the way that language goes and having seen some of the panels, um, I'm sure Chelsea Kane would agree with you that, that the tweets were attacking the book. But I would say that those tweets, the two that I saw originally and and, and in the context of the panels, um, and only at the same time because people were you know, connecting them, is uh, they were critiques rather than attacks. Like it's very much the, I really, really wanted to be a huge fan of Chelsea Kane's Man Eaters, or I really, really wanted to be a fan of Man Eaters, but I find it's very, very problematic that there's not blank, right? That doesn't okay. really strike me as attacking language. So No, I, yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's know, very fair. Uh, yeah. Whereas now people are like, Chelsea Kane is like a trolling turf. And that is see, it was it was my understanding. And again, I'm saying this as someone who was not paying attention, and mm-hmm. so this is all like second or third hand. The the people whose tweets were reproduced were already calling her that. Yeah, I think what they said, and I think there is something to be said for this, is that they were saying things like the that whether intentionally or not. It, the man eaters reinforces some uh, unfortunate uh, gender stereotyping uh, and, oh, and it, biological it's, it's, gender. Yes, it is. It is. Um, I mean, literally, yeah. the plot of the book is yeah. like women are being subjugated, and woman is pretty exclusively defined in the book as being able to menstruate. Right. Well, yes, and so therefore, I mean, we're in areas of like. Trans men, uh, of course, uh, menstruate. So, or or depending on and, where they're at within, you know, the 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 span of trans mensness, I guess, to phrase it poorly. So there, and and a lot of people pointed out, and it could be because it's said in uh, Oregon. No offense, Graham, but that the book is very very white. Uh, that there are aren't well, even I really mean, women of color <laughs> within it. You know. Yeah. Yes. And uh, you know, it's also an image book, and we talked about images problems last time. Yes. So yeah. So so there's 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 a lot there's a lot going on, going on there. But and yeah, for the first couple of, I mean, I'll be honest. When this shit happened with Chelsea Kane, the 
first time around where and it was where she was had tweeted a few comments about like, hey, I'll tell you, you know, honestly, I I believe there's only two genders or I don't believe there's anything more than two genders or however the hell she phrased it. I was like, okay, I I had actually had a digital subscription to Maneaters and I was like, okay, canceling out. But and this is this is where being a um uh entitled white dude who doesn't have any skin in the game, I was also like I'm more than happy to cancel cuz I think this is glacially paced. I I think the book is badly paced and and the amuse I'm not getting enough entertainment value for my dollar three or four issues in so i'm happy to cancel because i think the last issue i got was the magazine issue or something like that which yeah was... I, I, apparently the second volume the second collections out yeah so it's like money just far further on than i than i was up to date with yeah. yeah 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 so i mean but i just thought the first couple of issues were paced so poorly i was like uh no i gotta pull the plug on this so but that was as much my own thing so People might be like, so, again, engaging in problematic work in that, are you reading it? If you're engaging with problematic creators, do you mean, are you, I mean, I think a lot of people. Like, like what does that mean? Do you know, does it mean. uh, Tweeting about them? Does it mean tweeting to them? To them, exactly. Does it mean like, you know, actually having a conversation with Ethan Van Skyver thinking that you're going to change his mind? Right. Or does it mean. Uh, you know, uh, uh, subtweeting mm-hmm. people, or you know, I I don't quite understand what what engaging with problematic creators means. Right. But for example, reading quote unquote problematic work, go to town if that's what you want to do. But again, there is more than enough stuff out there that is not problematic that you have no responsibility to engage with problematic work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you can have a perfectly happy life without doing so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really think it comes down to personal preference. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely a very good point, uh, and I think I think that's about as far as we can go. I, I feel like we're there's some crucial part uh, of Dan's question, or yeah, I, I it's feel unstated. Like we don't under like yeah, we're, like not... I, we're just missing it. Do you want to? I guess is it? Do you want me to read Ethan's or no? His two questions. Okay, I grew up a Marvel guy and didn't start reading DC until post crisis with Legends and then JLI. I know there must be a ton of great stuff right before that time. What storylines or creator arcs from the first half of the 80s really stand out? I've read and enjoyed Judas Contract and Great Darkness Saga, but other than that, it's an unexplored world. And I'm glad I'm asking this question because Graham, who is going to be the best person to answer it, can answer it. I was going to say, Ethan, you're me. Mm -hmm. Like, I pretty much started reading DC with Legends and JLI. Mm-hmm. Like, that that was my entry point. Um, it's What's really funny is what storyline or creator art from the first half of the 1980s really stand out? Mm-hmm. That's a very specific thing. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure beyond, like, Legion and Teen Titans. Uh, like, I can think of things I really liked around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ween and Dave Gibbons' Green Lantern, which goes into the... Um, Engelhart State and Green Lantern. Right. I think it's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, Marv Wolfman and Gil Kane's Action Comics mm-hmm. is super, super strong from then. Um, Batman and the Outsiders, both of us have a, a yeah. weird fondness for. Absolutely. Uh, it is around that time, but it, like almost contemporaneous to that, what's going on in World's Finest at that time? 
Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. You've got Trial of the Flash. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is, it's honestly like wacky as shit. Yeah. But also utterly compelling. Yeah. That's like great compelling stuff. in its strangeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, is, I want to say like 83 to 85. That's right. Um, there's, so there is, there's a bunch of stuff. There's also the stuff that uh, kind of gets talked about in a weird roundabout way, like uh, Blue Devil, I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Mission, Gary Cohen, and Paris Collins' Blue Devil right. is, is super fun and super strong. Um, Mission and Cohen also did Amethyst's Princess of Gemworld, mm-hmm. which is, is honestly worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a bunch it, it's you know it's difficult to be like well what do you like do you know what i mean yes. like there's there's what do you recommend what stands out it depends what you like mm-hmm. um but also like have you read stuff before the 80s because right. there's a chunk mm-hmm. there like literally there's there's decades worth of work mm-hmm. to recommend um and and we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast like you know haney and Naparo's Brave oh, the Bolt. God, yes. Right. It's, it's just like, you know, mm-hmm. genuinely a, a, a astonishingly good superhero run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so very particular mm-hmm. that it's like, if honestly, I think if you like Marvel, you'll find something to dig in Haney and Paro's Brave and the Bolt. Mm-hmm. Because the, the Haney's bombast and weird lyricism mm-hmm. is like the Beach Boys to Stanley's Beatles. <laughs> You know, that's, that's, there, there, yeah. there's a similar vibe there that's mm-hmm. very different but also really similar if i find a parallel yeah um you know justice league Engelhart's justice league which apparently is going to be collected soon which makes me very happy yes um it's great Engelhart's justice league is, is genuinely wonderful stuff and has been far overlooked uh archie goodwin and walt simonson's manhunter mm-hmm. um you know, there's uh, Kirby's Kirby's Fourth World, but I'm sure you've read Kirby's Fourth World. Right. Uh, you know, there's there's all manner of of, of really good stuff out there mm-hmm. uh, from earlier decades. Right. So there's some 80s and 70s stuff. Yeah. Maybe that works, Jeff. What, is there, are I missing things? No, no. I mean, you you've got stuff in there. It's the the tough part is the first half of the 80s part for me because I'm trying to because for me I would be I. I feel like DC's a lot of DC stuff up to Crisis on Infinite Earths is in a weird way. A lot of things are more um, almost modular. Like there's more of a status quo. Like for example, you you mentioned um, the Beach Boys to the Beatles comparison of Bob Haney and Aparo uh, to to Stanley and the Marvel work. It's absolutely true when you look at the bombast and the lyricism and also just sort of the delivery quotient of enjoyable issues. But the for a long time, DC did not have a... Their concept of continuity was absolutely different from Marvel continuity oh, in oh, so uh, many yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. You and, could literally read you know, World's Finest and Superman and, and DC Comics Presents. And for all intents and purposes, they are utterly unrelated books. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in, in a way that that is the antithesis of what Marvel was doing with Amazing Spider-Man and Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man and Marvel team-up, depending on who was writing it or, or how it yeah. was working out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... I'm going to st- take you at your word. I feel like I feel like Ethan. Some of the stuff that you're asking about the Judas contract and Great Darkness Saga are to me the most Marvelized 
of takes on a pre-crisis DC, like DC continuity as it existed, starting to become more Marvel, Marvelized, Mar- Marvelicious. Um, well, yeah, and also what's interesting is Judas Contrast and Great Darkness Saga are the quote-unquote big storylines out of extended runs. Right, and so part yeah, of me is like, yeah, been writing writing Teen Titans for like over ten years. Uh, and- not monthly like judas contract is around the 40s so it's it's about no no but no, no but i mean as, as a whole like oh, okay. Wolfman, like new teen titan starts in what 81 and i want to say mm-hmm. he, he's off the book for after zero yeah hour right. so that's like 95 yeah so he's on the book for like 14 years as a whole right and, and uh, levitz is on legion for mm-hmm. like almost 10 years i want to say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right you know, and and so Judas Contract, Great North Star are like the big storylines. Yeah, but they are by no means like you get in and you get out. Yes, no, right, exactly. They're big culminations. So part of me is like, yeah, why not read those first forty issues of New Teen Titans or everything that comes after as well? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like for 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 my money, and I love Great Darkness Saga, but Great Darkness Saga is. Great, but what follows in Legion, I think, is as good, if not better. Right. Hmm. You know? Right. So so read more of that? Right. But it, then it gets weird and tough to, to jump around. Like, there's a bunch of 70s stuff that I can blab about, but weirdly, I feel like pre-crisis 80s DC is hard because I was such a Marvel dude, um, and then my carryover, my, my jumping over point was Wolfman and Perez's Teen Titans and then mm-hmm. from there more Swamp Thing and a variety of other stuff so you know it's so true Swamp Thing Alan, Alan, we didn't even mention Alan Moore's Swamp right. Thing Alan Moore's Swamp Thing if you haven't read it is it has some really remarkable stuff in it uh, you know um, I picked up very much as long as I'm talking retroactively after the fact really enjoyed uh, Firestorm um you know, uh, Fury of Firestorm, which I feel is pre-crisis, yeah. right? It's, but yes, but also it's very Marvel. Yeah, like oh, one of, exactly. one of my favorite things about uh, Jerry Conway's Firestorm is it's literally what if Flash Thompson was the hero and what if Peter Parker was just a dick? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which which is a lot of fun, but like you know, if you like, you know, early. Uh, it, honestly, if you're a Marvel guy and you like early Spider-Man, but also like Nova. Mm-hmm. Like Firestorm is essentially DC's Nova. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. But argue, I would say better. Better. It, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. Which, which breaks my heart as somebody who loved Nova at first. Okay, on to the next question. Another one. Feel free to just answer one or none. With Fox's X-Men and Fantastic Four now dead and buried, how would you intro- introduce these concepts into the MCU? Specifically, can you launch the original X-Men in the year 2020, or does that really have to be in the civil rights movement time in the 60s? Same question for the FF. Do you need a space race to make it work? Uh, I don't know how you launch X-Men in MCU. Yeah. I genuinely don't. Mm-hmm. Because we've seen the MCU for a decade. Right. And I don't know how you all of a sudden go, oh, and there are mutants that we've never told you about. Right. Um, like that seems genuinely problematic to me. I don't know how you do that because mm-hmm. uh, I also don't think that you can launch X Men by going there are these five mutants and there aren't any other mutants. Right. 
Um, so I like X Men is X Men is difficult to to know how you launch unless you basically just fudge it and say like there's always been mutants that we've never talked about them before, which feels really difficult and also like no one will buy it. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm not. I really don't know how you launch X Men. Yeah. Um, I don't think you need a space race for Fantastic Four at all. I, I, the Josh Trank movie was not particularly good, although it was interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think that, like, honestly, I think that the basic concept of that, where you just replace the rocket with some other experimental technology, is, is sound. Right. Yeah. I, I think where you run into, I think where you run into problems with FF actually is that there are lots of superheroes already. Right. Yeah, I don't I think, think this. I don't think it's the space race. I think it's the fact that like they'll be coming into a world that has like has had the Avengers, has had Thanos destroying half the planet. We'll see that. You too. know, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's where you run into problems with the FF. Yeah, is you've got the FF coming into the MCU where you've already had you know a chunk of New York destroyed by big cosmic space slugs relatively early on. And now you're dealing with the absolute insanity of, you know, half the people have been dead for five years and are suddenly back as if no time has passed and the other haven't. Like, I mean, it's insane to think about it. That's just going to be like... No, of course. It's all going to be ignored. The status quo. But I I think there is... At that point, you start coming into some challenges of, well, what makes the Fantastic Four special? And I... Honestly, I I think you cheat. I think you bring them in from an alternate dimension. Oh, really? Hmm. And you think you just bring them in fully formed? Hmm. Could be. I nah, uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm really glad that I don't have to solve problems with that. I'm not necessarily sure that I can. It's ironic because considering you know we read volume one of the Fantastic Four, part of me is like you said. There's particularly because I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of updating that you could do with the FF in a way that's like where people are people are talking about, you know, it's, the U.S. government's talking about the creation of a space force. You have dudes like it's pretty easy to make a. I mean, it's hard to say this without throwing up in my mouth a little bit, but it's it's not hard to make a big jump from Elon Musk to Reed Richards right now. You know what I mean? Like in terms of like an easy screenwriter hook of like, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's it's not a you know no pun intended stretch. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I mean, I feel like you you practically even could build it up with the space stuff. Um, I think for the X Men, the way that I would see it is is that you if you wanted to do if the MCU wanted to do it, what I would what I think they would have to sit down and do is i don't know i think it's part of the thing that sucks about the thing that works about the x-men is again a little bit of the idea of like when the x-men are students at the academy there are there have been predecessor mutants like i feel like that one of the smart things that the that the fox movies did is they took a lot of the backstory that Chris Claremont and some others had built for Charles Xavier and Magneto and really integrated that in there. So there was a little bit of the idea of like, yeah, these these have been characters that have been struggling for a while. Like, 
far in the background of a world that didn't really know them or understood that they existed. Um, and I, and, and that works in, in a world that's like that. But again, you're just in that weird, like, depending on how they handle things, the idea that you've got Nick Fury, supposedly after the events of Captain Marvel, running around and putting together an Avengers initiative and looking for superpowered beings and not coming across any of them. Like, yeah, again, exactly. Like it, the idea that they've been out there and no one has seen them before. Right. Is a problem. And honestly, I don't think you can do the same thing you did with Captain Marvel again. Yeah. I don't think you can do that trick twice. Of, no, exactly. There is a hidden history. Yep. Whereas I, you know, and someone like Jonathan Hickman's shield may prove me wrong. Although I personally did not like much of that series very much at all. I would be more, I would see a point of if they wanted to, if they wanted to make introducing the X-Men, say the cornerstone of the backstory of phase three or phase four, kind of the way the emergence of Thanos did where you start having a character behind the scenes like Apocalypse that begins bringing out the hidden genetic potential to create a, a mutant army, I suppose. And you start creating more mutants and then ultimately it builds to a emergence of superpowered mutants and then you get the X-Men and all that stuff. Like maybe you could work that into the background of the movies I don't know what else they've got going on now that they've wrapped up this stuff with Thanos. It it sort of makes sense. I just, part of me is kind of like, I personally think that what they'll do is start sprinkling those characters in their piecemeal such that we'll see Wolverine in the next five years and then, you know, five years after that, maybe we'll have the X-Men. You know what I mean? Like, we'll just, they'll sprinkle all the popular characters and then they'll be able to band them together as the X-Men. But it, they're going to have to do it in a way that requires, like, a lot of, a lot of forethought. Like, I, so, I, so X-Men I very much see as a slow boil. I do think that the FF is probably, arguably, because of all the space race noise now, is probably better doing it now rather than later the fantastic four is, is much quicker yeah because all you really need is like a scientist his love interests yeah her brother and his best friend yep. do something dumb yep you know you can do that in one yeah. film exactly exactly uh and but but the x-men like the x-men is literally a mythology you have to bring in the mythology of mutants mm -hmm. and you know maybe you're right maybe they do see like you know you will see mutants slowly emerge over the next few films in mm -hmm. the background. Right. But I don't think you can just do like, it's an X-Men film and mutants have always been here. Yep. And I also don't think you could do, it's an X-Men film and there are no other mutants. Yep. Yeah. So I think they're, I do think they're kind of screwed with X-Men. Yeah. I, I personally, I think they can pull it off with a slow boil. And honestly, for me who did not like the retro retcon inserts of characters like apocalypse and i think mr sinister this is more or less after i stopped reading like i was like i'm not crazy about these guys like i was like you know honestly i'm like anything beyond even the living pharaoh i'm like Meh, really you know but but if you start them as the 
as the quote unquote new villains or the the new Thanos behind the scenes that is starting to grow something. Sure. Why? I mean, why not if you can sort of do it in a way that somehow meshes with what the how Marvel's worked on it before? You know what I mean? So I don't know. It's honestly, I think that it's a shame uh, in at least in a creative wonk way that. Like, I guess now with Disney Plus coming up, the idea that you're going to have a Marvel TV division that is more of an extension of the Marvel movie thing, as opposed to two different divisions kind of pretending to play nice together, you probably could start building the groundwork for some of those things in TV shows if you started small enough. I think at least at least I mean, for backstory and Mar- history. Marvel movies is going to make the TV shows for Disney Plus. Yes, so, so that's why I mentioned Disney the space. Plus. Exactly. You yeah. know? Yep. So, but I would I would also start that very 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 small. So, yeah. Okay, so that's 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 that. Okay, let's do Patch and Mortimer, which is yes. a, a a long one for what could be a long answer. Yes. As I tweeted to Jeff, I'm currently going through your archives and your Baxter Building and Star Brand rereads. We're like getting two chapters of a psychobiography that now I cannot <laughs> stop thinking about. Like, when was he good? He is John Byrne, I should say. The the yes. the um this was via email and the email subject line was uh, John Byrne. When when was John Byrne good? When was he great? When and why did he go wrong? And why did he hold such sway in an industry for so long, despite being, at least as a writer, manifestly hidebound, boring and bad? Some backgrounds, as I think I've mentioned previously on Twitter, I've always resented John Byrne for driving me off Iron Man, which was the title that got me interested in comics. I've been reading comics for a year when he delivered the Iron Wars 2 storyline, a lifeless slog featuring neither armor nor wars. This is I this is me interrupting now. That is entirely correct. Apart from the fact obviously Iron Man wore armor. Wow. But Iron Man Iron Wars two, I might be misremembering, I think was announced before Byrne got the job. Yeah. And Byrne like was like, Okay, I guess I'm doing Iron Wars two. I don't know what that is. Yeah. I did something that was entirely disconnected to the original Iron Wars storyline. Anyway, mm-hmm. um back to back to uh, uh comment. Yeah. Uh, comment. The supporting cast largely vanished, the Man in Mask subplot disappeared, there was a retelling of the origin. I held on for a year and then gave up mid-arc. Seventh grade me had no patience for Finn Fang Foom, at least not Burns' version. And the X-Tiles had lured me away, coincidentally just before the big 1991 X-Summer shake-up that saw Claremont leave, and ironically Burns take over. Mm. Uh, being a middle schooler, I didn't think to blame the writer. I just knew things had gone wrong. But <laughs> years later, my grad school roommate and I would try X-Men The Hidden Years, and it was Drek. At the same time, we were rereading my old comic collection, and lo and behold, I suddenly connected the dots. Then, in the last year or so, I've been listening to podcasts like yours and discovered he did this nonsense to countless titles for decades. You guys have perspective on omnivorous habits I don't. Anyway, you can take some time to shed some light on this. What drove him to be the way he was? What were his peaks and valleys, etc.? When you look at his career in total, is there a unified theory of burn beyond a guy who was envious of Claremont and who desperately wanted comics to back to the way they were when he was 10? Is it that simple or is there more? Anyway, just a thought and thanks for the podcast. Imagine that's not just a thought. Like that is that's a challenge. Yeah, right? no kidding. Uh, so I, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a, an initial stab and, uh, probably the least important part of it, but 
But I don't think so. I think a very, very crucial thing that cannot be overlooked um, is that's easy to overlook when you discover Burn at the Armor War II side of things, which is to say at that point in his career, it, he's pretty much been a writer, writer slash artist as long as he is, you know, as long as he was just an artist. But I think for people like me and therefore to conf perhaps extrapolate wrongly, a lot of the comic book reading fandom, John Byrne was a huge superstar artist for a long time before he started the FF. I say a long time, maybe four years, five years, which is very long back then in, in comic book years. Uh, I, of course loved burn from the instant he started drawing well instant relatively on in his iron fist run with chris claremont and then he went on to tackle do some other books here and there they also did I mean, a great run on marvel team up yeah i was gonna say mm -hmm. he did uh, iron fist with, with claremont team up with claremont and then x-men with claremont yeah and, and and like that one three punch i think really was a mm-hmm this this guy's great. Well, and Uncanny X Men really did blow up. It was one of my favorite books under Cockrum the first time, but then when Burn comes on, it goes on to become huge. And by the time Burn leaves, it is it is the biggest thing in the comics industry by a by a very wide margin. I think it is very hard to. Um, you can't really talk about Byrne as a writer without first talking about Byrne's popularity as an artist because he had several years where he really imprinted on guys as a quote-unquote great superhero comic artist. And I think that seems almost kind of hard to wrap your brain around now, but I was thinking about this, and I was like... Byrne was a guy who I think was a, uh, you know, uh, tr tr would be a, occasionally and tried to be inventive in his layouts to try and keep his storytelling uh, dynamic. For me, he really had a sweet spot for his line weight where, you know, I know that you don't like it uh, in particular, but the Byrne Austin team, I thought Terry Austin did such a great job at nailing perfectly where burns lines should have um have heavy ink have a heavy ink or a thinner line and it just was embarrassing to say kind of sumptuous you know i think that burn was also one of those dudes who was great for drawing big two superheroes because i felt like he did think about he wasn't a character designer really in the way that say we think of like John Romita or even George Perez. But I do think that Byrne was good about thinking of the physicality of characters and how they were different. So a lot of that, even though you get a lot of stuff, even back then in the way that maybe someone crouches defensively in an action scene for example that it didn't matter which character it was at least across away he was a good follow-up to Cockrum who also had spent a lot of time 
thinking of the diff- like one of the great things about Cockrum's reinvention of the X-Men is they are all incredibly different physical body types and Cockrum loved drawing that and Byrne did too. So his Nightcrawler was very different in physicality from Wolverine, from Storm, Colossus. Similarly, his Spider-Man, he was he he knew the difference between a, you know, a Ditko Spidey and a Romita Spidey and he was trying for something sometimes between the two. Uh and and that all sounds like really obvious, but for someone like me who like half the books were being drawn by John Basima or Sal Basima or Don Heck, you know, this is very heavily in the Marvel department. There there was there was a lot of of physical sameness to a lot of the characters. So Byrne had a real he had a thoughtfulness as an artist that really did seem at least initially to set the world on fire on Fantastic Four. Uh those of who were listening to us in the Baxter building Burnt starts off really good. He's got a really good first year on Fantastic Four. I, it sort of seems like there's diminishing returns, at least when you're reading them now. But as as a kid, as Graham was, or as a teenager, as I, as I was, there was there was most of the stuff that you wanted. There were subplots. Yeah, yeah. There I, was I, characterizations. Yeah. I, I, well, the other thing is, you know. One of the things that you are not saying about Burns' art mm-hmm. that I think is important, at least is important to me at the age I was, you know, when Burn was doing, because I basically missed his X-Men. I was too young. Mm. But I remember him doing Fantastic Four. And honestly, like doing things like Hulk and, and Alpha Flight and like other books of Marvel. Right. And, and seeing his covers was Burns' art was pretty. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, and other artists didn't do pretty art in the same way. Yeah. Like, there was something just attractive and honestly, like, weirdly 1980s-ish. Yes. Like, glossy and 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 surface level, you know, attractive and pretty that that worked, like, worked at the time, like, was yeah. was very much of the time. Yes. And and he seemed like he was personifying something that was current. Yeah, like he was drawing the characters as they were now, as, as they were. Yes. You know, yeah, a, a Basema, like either of the Basemas, mm-hmm. um, or a Cockrum, especially. And I think when Cockrum came back to X Men, this really was was apparent. Like they seemed like dated versions of the characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burns' art felt contemporary, even when he's drawing Fantastic Four and to my money, making them all the colder. Right. Um, with the exception of Johnny, who I feel like he de-aged considerably. Yes. Um, they, they, there was something about them that they felt like they were the now characters. They were the real characters mm-hmm. uh, because the, because it was so contemporary, because it was so pretty. Yeah. Uh, in a way that other artists didn't measure up. Like, even before you get to the writer element of burn yes and so i think this you're right this is an excellent point and kind of what i was talking about with the line weight is like i remember and can still look back at those old issues and get visual pleasure from them like there's just that feeling of it where it's really weird it's like is it the line weight is it i don't think it's just nostalgia because of course when i was a kid the way it was hitting me it it, like you said, it's just, it's pretty, it's, it's visually sumptuous. And that, 
carries a huge weight. I mean, he was a big, big artist. Uh, I and I think that you know, so we talk about the Fantastic Four. He, of course, then gets the offer to reinvent Superman, and Superman is sort of another thing where Byrne is able to. It takes what he did from the Fantastic Four, but even more so. He, quote-unquote, returns the character to the basics. He has a much larger and more open hand with recreating the character and returning them to what he perceives as their basics as opposed to an FF having to sort of come up work with... Work around the, Yeah. Yeah, come up or with in-story... Yeah, in-story reasons for it. So... Uh, and his Superman also looks great. Again, there's that the body acting. Like I love how much um, his Superman really has a very different posture from the way that you see. You know, and he talks about that 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 one great issue of uh, well, it's great, it's okay of issue is it three fifty uh, two fifty of the FF where they fight Gladiator. And Byrne is like, yeah, it was all Superman poses. And he's like, and it just worked, you know. But the thing is, is Byrne knows what those Superman poses really are. He makes yeah. his character a lot more ta-da than you were getting from, like, say, Kurt Swan, you know. And well, he was a much more dynamic artist than Kurt Swan. Exactly. You know, exactly. Kurt, Kurt Swan, bless him, Kurt Swan's line work. Was oh, astonishing. Kurt yeah. Swan's character writing, yeah. you know, genuine line parallels until he gets like a Kevin Maguire. Mm-hmm. But you know, he was not a dynamic artist. He mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he like compare Kirby and Kurt Swan, right? And it's you know, it's the difference between classical music and you know the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's right. So you get some very staid approaches on the characters, and then you get Burn coming in. And, uh, you know, I think I think in that sense, the the Superman thing, all all of those years of success creates this kind of ego. And there's still a lot of uh, as he goes from being a fiercely competitive dude um, to being uh, essentially being a I know what's right. He's it's kind of a 900 pound gorilla situation. To be try to be fair to him, he also had tremendous success in openly reinventing characters as a writer and artist, and so he tends to do a lot more of that. Um, I feel like he also felt in his head that he was a marriage of Marvel, Marvel, Silver Age, Marvel, and DC, which is to say. I think when you look at Byrne, there's a real strong he was he was a DC fanboy, I think as shows up in a lot of his art, but you can see the John Broom influence. Like he's one of those dudes that um, you know, like, kind of like Claremont was, you know, because of the strong science fiction writer influence on comics particularly DC stuff during the Sofer age. Um, they were both heavy science fiction dudes, but I guess it could be argued that Byrne was more of a hard sci-fi wonk. And so he spends a lot of time 
Sometimes it's great because he'll build an entire story around a fun science fact, which is very much what I think of as a Silver Age DC thing, and then Mm -hmm. is also trying to push a more Marvel concept of subplot and character. But, you know, at a certain point, it sort of starts turning into mush. I I feel like Byrne also talks about changing his style and changing things to be able to draw. Cause as we know from anyone who's seen his posts on the Burn Forum, or if you follow the the great John Byrne Draws uh, Twitter account, I hope that's the right name. I think John Byrne says. John Byrne says, where it, it's some some uh, genuinely charitable soul like makes it a point to, to tweet stuff that Byrne's written on the forum. Uh, there's Byrne... There's a lot of things that Byrne believed in and and professionalism and craftsman's type stuff was a big deal to him. A lot of people like the like I think I told you this, Graham, like one really thing I remember talking to Scott McCloud at like a San Diego Comic-Con like back in the er, super early 90s, like he was still doing Zot and he was leaving Zot to work on this book about understanding comics right and i was talking to him about stuff and somehow we ended up talking about this idea he because he wanted to he had this uh idea about how kirby the number of artists that had destroyed themselves trying to be or better kirby you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like i feel there's you know kirby did amazing things and created boundless stuff but he also like drew at a prodigious speed and i remember the point where like burn stepped aside in some letters column to talk about why his art style was changing maybe did this twice because one time was like i want to update my rendering style which you know was the kind of yeah i feel that that was in fantastic four yeah i think in fantastic four he was like yeah i'm updating my rendering style to make it more contemporary because i'm just i feel like i'm turning into a fogey and then i feel and maybe i hallucinated this or conflated it with that there was another time where he was like I am getting old and I'm slowing down and I'm making some changes to make sure that I can can keep at the current pace that I'm drawing, which was like, I don't know, it was a book or two books a month or whatever it was. But then you start getting incredibly predictable layouts. So so he he, he essentially turns into an egomaniac who feels that he's always right and therefore he steps in. And the thing that sucks is he went from being someone who one of his big complaints was other people were not paying attention to continuity to someone who just openly, openly ignored what had happened on a run before him. Like it to to a level that almost seemed like peevish vitriol. You know, like the I the the fact that he follows up West Coast Avengers actively, actively, genuinely fucking everything that Engelhart has been trying to do. Yes. With, yeah. Know. Which is which is genuinely. Yeah. Like shocking. Yeah. But, and, but also but also at the same time, no, because he clearly hadn't been reading it. Right. Well, see, right. There's one part that's like, I'm not reading it. There's a certain thing where there's something that he finds very very distasteful about the vision scarlet witch relationship 
that is clear was bothering that he had read and bothered him long before he he steps in there. But there's a whole bunch of stuff where he's like, yeah, I'm not going to read it and I'm not going to bother to. So like you said, he takes out Armor Wars 2 and I think he's just like, I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to come up with my own Armor Wars based on what I think that will be about. And then all the subplots get thrown out, all the other stuff. He's, you know, of course, he's going to do a, a tour around the origin so that he can do his stealth updating that a lot of people both admired and found very controversial uh, on the Fantastic Four. Well, I mean, remember, he did that with the Hulk as well. Yes, exactly. He, no, he eventually exactly. takes over Hulk and does exactly the same thing. Yep. Yeah. So... Uh, so I don't know, like the psychobiography underneath him, like I said, I think there's, there's a lot that's his, his endless frustration with Chris Claremont's success and acclaim that, that annoys him to, to, to no end. But I think he also ends up whatever, I don't feel like those are the demons that drive him past a certain point. Well. It, it, this is not the psychobiography of Byrne, but I think that Byrne gets a lot of his quote-unquote power from the success of Uncanny X-Men as artist. Yes. The success of Fantastic Four as writer-artist. That's right. The And the Superman reboot. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the case of the last two, he benefits greatly by those books being essentially failures before he comes on. Yeah, hugely in the doldrums. Uh, I, and and I think that because I don't think it's I mean especially his Superman now I think his Superman when you reread it is does not hold up in the slightest and I say this mm-hmm. to someone who at the time was like oh my god this is the Superman I've always been waiting for right you know in my defense I was fucking ten years old but yep. you know yeah uh, but when you reread it now like it's terrible yeah again the art is is great mm-hmm. in large part. Honestly, I think his inkers do him a great service. I think he's so good. Giordano yeah. and Carl Kiesel. Yeah, uh, King, right. Different right. titles. And I think they lift his work significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but his writing is, is not good and is very pedestrian. And it, it's, it has the sort of shock of the new when he comes on. Mm-hmm. But he is, I mean, really impressively conservative. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his like, oh, this will be a shocker mm-hmm. because it's not like it's a shocker because he he came on and said all of this stuff is gone and he's like it's shocker it's Supergirl it's shocker it's Laura Lamaris right you know it's the Phantom Zone villains yeah. yeah and none of that is shocking yeah. except the fact that he has said well none of this counts mm-hmm. and then he's like but it's back mm-hmm. um, and the, the the writing does not hold up at all mm-hmm. uh, I think that. He, I think it's fair to say, like he does have creative peaks, but I think like mm-hmm. the, the tipping point is honestly the the Superman run. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, something that that maybe does play into the psychobiography is he is essentially fired from Marvel when he starts my, uh, Superman because right. he thought he was going to be able to work for both companies, and Jim Shooter says no. Right. Um. But he leaves Superman after two years and goes back to Marvel mm-hmm. and is met with less success and honestly less important titles. Oh, yeah. He goes back and works on Avengers West Coast and She-Hulk. Yeah, right. You know, and then Namor. Mm-hmm. And then 
you know, after uh, admittedly a long time, like he goes on, he does like Next Men, Dark Horse, mm-hmm. and then he goes back to DC, and he just, I feel like his, he's just in this slide. Yeah. Like after after Superman, where where he's he's burned bridges. Yes. Yeah. Nice. And, and he's he's really he knows he's on the downswing. You know, and and his work is his work gets less interesting. It, it really does visually less interesting. There's a whole point where he's doing like Wonder Woman at, at DC, mm-hmm. and it's just, I mean, he, he has always prided himself on having a high production rate in terms of pages. Yeah, but Wonder Woman looks like he is hacking that shit out. Exactly, it looks really bad. Yep, um, and and he he. Thinks I think John Byrne still believes in the myth of John Byrne. I think the myth of John Byrne was founded at this point more than thirty years ago. Yeah, and he has always been trying to live up to that because at some point his his creative god stopped being his self professed Kirby and started being John Byrne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is ironic because, like you said, Superman. I started off reading. All those titles, and I think I, I stopped within a I I thought I've held out for a year on Superman, but maybe not. It was hard. It really was. It was. It was. It was a shame. I re, I was just like, this shit is really boring, and and it is. It could be the boring of someone who is a professional bore, you know, which is to say that they are far too entertained by themselves and their own high regard. Um, but yeah. And, and I think that, I think the way that he excused how the rest of the industry essentially didn't think nearly as much of him, uh, has been part of his continuing angle of, you know, you know, literally the, the, it's so hard. I'm like the glorious Steinem sunset Boulevard character. That's something to ponder, ponder with a glorious Swanson character in, in, um, sunset Boulevard in that as, as far as Burns concerned, he's still big. It's the comic industry that got small and petty, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think that's it. It's kind of, kind of boring. It'd be awesome if there was something else in there that really nailed it. You know, like, then there's the fact that he killed the guy, Dan right. Fingeroth. Yeah, yeah, no, but it did. No, but, but honestly, like, I think at some point, John Byrne just starts believing in John Byrne. Yes. And, and really does. I mean, Sunset Boulevard's a really good reference. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think he starts getting bitter mm-hmm. that he isn't getting given the biggest books. Mm-hmm. And, and so. It's because so everyone get... else is fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and it's, it's you know he he's still doing everything he's always been doing, and only he understands what comics needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's he doesn't he genuinely doesn't understand that comics have moved on. Yeah, and that the, the audience has moved on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the employers have moved on. Ah, well, and the, and the employers have moved on. Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah he's he's just he's lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we move on? Do you think? Let's move on. Let's do what are we at? We're we're almost at two hours. Yes. Yeah. Uh Thomas Rude. Sorry, Thomas. Uh for 
jumbling your name. Are the big two basically unable to make good fantasy and science fiction comics because the creators are used to the character-focused superhero genre and take it for granted that they can make drastic changes to the underlying world building in a book when they take it over? C.E.G. Wonder Woman, Legion of Superheroes. Uh, I feel like, do you think, is that a separate question from the next paragraph, Graham, or is that together? Uh, I mean, I think it's tangentially connected to what follows. Okay, we'll break it into two parts. I recently binge read a lot of European, not British comics, Storm, Thorgal, Lanefost. When listening to your latest episode, it struck me that this is the only area, this is, sorry, the one area of comics I can't remember hearing you discuss. Do you have any interest in this section of comics? I don't know how much is available in English. Uh, not enough is available in English. Let's just start with that. Yeah. Um, the the English language market for European comics is honestly just fucking grim. It's yeah. it's it's surprising how little is out there. Mm-hmm. And I want to say is a failure of publishers, but at the same time, uh, it's the market is not there. It's a it's a chicken and the egg. Like the, if the market was there, publishers would be doing more, but the market won't be there until publishers do more. Well, like, someone yeah. needs to someone needs to make the push, right? Um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer is. Like, I can come up with suggestions, but I know that they wouldn't work. <laughs> right. I I would say my my for myself. I remember there was a point where Humanoids was around long enough and was starting to put out product regularly, and I was that I was starting to read more European stuff, like, you know, very fond memories of reading Anki Bilal's work, Shodorowsky's mm-hmm. stuff, sort of semi-dipping into Mobius, although already the rights problem was getting super problematic there. And then Humanoids sort of pivoted, which is to say fell on their face, and they sort of still continued to hang out. This is Humanoids, the Ameri- the USA arm not the european arm uh and they're still around i guess in ways where they're now also trying to produce original ip so yeah having having a good strong publisher that's committed to it that can hang around for a long time means a lot for myself i've never i've always been terrible at reading stuff uh in a foreign language you know like if i don't know the language i'm shot even sitting down and it's only through a lot of determination am I able to make it through uh, the manga that I picked up in Japan that's in Japanese. It's like, oh, only because I've read oh, yeah, no, yeah, characters I, I, and I can, them. I can literally read the, the images and that's it. Yeah. And it's a shame because there are a shocking amount of Italian artists whose stuff I just utterly love. Yeah, I believe uh, it. Italian in particular, mm. whose stuff I really feel like they've taken, like, you know, they've looked at Toth, they've looked at Bernane, and then they've just been like, oh, wait, these are the people I want to learn from. Right. And it's, it's 100% shit. I just, like, adore. You know, you look yeah. like, Dil- you look at Dylan Dog or something, and I'm just mm. like, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. these artists are amazing. And this isn't, you know, we're not talking about Storm or anything. I remember reading Storm when I was a teenager, I think, mm. uh, I want to say Marvel UK reprinted it. Wow. Marvel UK used to have, and this is like the early 90s, used to have a, a title called Strip, which was reprints of, of European work. Wow. Uh, um, and I want to say Storm was in that. I might be misremembering. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, part of it is I'm not a big fantasy fan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of that stuff that doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the European stuff I read that's translated is mostly stuff that comes out from, like, Fantagraphics. Mm-hmm. Um and and drawn in quarterly and, and and publishers like that, and because of what the the market bears, you know, like um, you're you're seeing more slice of life stuff mm-hmm. or more crime stuff. There's a lot of crime material I think that's come up, come through or biographies, right? You know, I I don't think the genre work has necessarily come through that much mm-hmm. uh, in this country. Uh, yeah, I, I could I could be wrong, mm-hmm. but but no, I I would say there there's there's very little out there in the English language, uh, and it's a shame. I, I I would like to read more if more was available. To be honest, uh, yeah, it's it is kind of a bummer. I would like to dip my toe into it again. I feel like I'm at a stage where I don't want to say the ship has sailed. Like I remember being super excited that um, Bolal's the woman trap i think or no maybe it was the nicopal trilogy in general hit uh comicsology and it was you know dc had a really good european reprint line that just fucking died a dog's death like two or three years in and that's where i picked up relatively affordable but decently reprinted um stuff like Balal or Jordorowski's let's say the bouncer no son of a gun son of the gun um and a few few other things I'd like to move further down that road or at least I wanted to then now I'm like I don't know I do love some of the art I tend I do tend to be a character focused the character focused superhero genre is how I got dragged into the market and it's where I'm still heavily invested like you know and so for me like reading something like i literally just today finished volume 14 of haiku the japanese volleyball shonen manga that is just fabulous but is like the it's the same characters and then it's like they introduce secondary characters and it's very much bringing those characters in huge big fan i think as everyone knows of of when conan came out from marvel there's the edgar rice bros books that i read but but i never i don't know how to describe it like in that sense i was also a very when you hear uh some science fiction fans complain about lazy science fiction readers um that was me. Like I was kind of like, sure, space cabbie. Great. You know, like I never went on and read Heinlein, you know, it's like most of my science fiction stuff was pretty, pretty pulpy. Um, And so therefore there's ways in which I'm like, yeah, I guess it looks lovely. Like I, I'm very excited when I can see that influence when it's inserted in in a in an intriguing and interesting way into the stuff that i'm regularly reading like uh mm-hmm. when remender teamed up with jerome Pena for uh x factor or no 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 uh, uh, uh force yeah. yeah which was gorgeous and larger and and uh seen sometimes anyway what grant morrison and liam sharp can do on the green lantern uh, is can be lovely when I see those influences and I can kind of recognize them and I like the 
the otherness of them. But yeah, I'm not I'm not really schooled in them. I think that there's a good case to be made that character focused stuff is probably more important than say swapping out the underlying world building because I think that like you know when we're talking about DC like you know most of the quote unquote successful fantasy comics from the big 2 and I think there were and are ones usually character driven and also really strongly overseen by like someone for a huge chunk of time like the fact that Roy Thomas wrote those first 100 issues of Conan actually maybe 100 plus maybe John Basima left after 100 I don't remember but or I'm thinking of Mike Grell as Warlord. Warlord ran for a very long time for DC, uh, but it was also very much, as I recall, a Mike Grell production, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's more stuff like that. And I think that because of the nature of... I also think there's something about the nature of the work of because the big two do not give you the rights. And I mean, I don't know how things work out with Storm and Thorgal and stuff like that, if that's also work for hire stuff. But I tend to think of a lot of European comics as being work for hire. And at that point, there's more of a vested interest uh, in being able to create more ambitious stuff that can take a longer time to create. So you can create... A, a genuine fantasy world or fantasy novel or science fiction world and then quit it and move on to the next because you're going to see the royalties from that book, you know, for a long, long time and you'll always own them. Like this is something that Pat Mills weirdly enough talks about is like, yeah, once 2000 AD backed out on their promises of creator ownership, you know, it just, you know, kind of that was the end and blah, blah, blah. Honestly, like, I, I also have problems with the premise of the first question. Mm. Like, are the big two basically unable to make good fancy and science fiction comics? Well, I, I I don't know. Like, like, are they or are they just disinterested? Well, I I mean, again, it's sort of I think I think fantasy stuff is kind of a harder nut to crack, but I I think there's a case to be made that when Warren Ellis dips his toes into things. I think generally he writes pretty decent science and science Yeah, like like I I would say stuff. I would say Wildstorm is a science fiction comic. Right. You know? But but at the same time, like the reason I was I was like, I'm not sure about the premise of the question is I am also thinking of like Sandman. Mm-hmm. Or well, yeah, I suppose that's true. I think Sandman Sandman in particular appears to be like a great fantasy, et cetera, et cetera. I don't. I, yeah, I think that's true. Once you look outside, I mean, he uh, Tom Tomas does say the big two, and so maybe he is leaving Vertigo I think he, out I, of that. Yeah, I honestly think it's one of those things where like the big two suddenly gets classified as like yeah. DC superheroes as opposed to everything DC publishes. Right, right. Because honestly, when it comes to Marvel, I don't think they want to publish fancy or science fiction. Well, I mean, they do if it's a if it's an already existing property. I mean. You know, they want to do Star Wars. They want to do Conan. Like, if they own it, sure, and they can exploit it. But in terms of, uh, there's so much atrophy within the big two for the last 20 God, plus de- odd yeah, years. Yeah, I was going to say two decades. Yeah, yeah, two or three decades because people don't have the rights. So why create that stuff there? It sort of makes sense that... Because people, because there was sort of a science fiction and fantasy tilt in Vertigo that you saw a lot of science fiction and fantasy books launch 
um, out of image. In fact, I think someone would turn around and say like, oh, yeah, you know, The Wicked and the Divine is a great fantasy uh, series of great fantasy comics and very much is an extension of, in a way, you know, a kind of it, it's hard to imagine it existing without Vertigo existing, even exactly, if it didn't exactly. end up being yeah, a Vertigo yeah. book. So, so it is, it's a, it's a little hard. I think, I think that underlying issues of, of rights may just have as much of a fact of that than say any particular focus. Um, but that's, that's my theory. Last question, because we are, we're over two hours now. Yeah. And I, following up in the names that we're going to slaughter, Sky Adamchik. Yeah, I think that's right. That's I, how I was going to pronounce it. Yeah, I, I, we'll see. Uh, it says a few episodes ago, you mentioned your love of incredibly well-researched but batshit insane manga. This is clearly addressed to Jeff, yeah. and so you came to mind when I learned about Drops of God by Yuko and Shin Kabayashi. Yes. To try and give an elevator pitch, it follows the formula of a lot of other battle manga being about a young man who received brutal torturous training from his father to heighten his senses facing off against a rival who turns out to be a secret brother with the same training. The twist is, instead of fights, it's all about wine tasting. Personally, this is a field I know nothing about, but the manga has a great reputation amongst the wine-tasting community, effectively increasing the sales of each wine mentioned. Yes. Love Uh, that detail. Love that detail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's true, and and now, I do. Your special, have you have you talked about this manga before? Because I feel like you have. I have. Yeah, I have. Uh, yes. Thanks for asking, Sky. You made it as a recommendation, and I apologize for sort of truncating your your email to fit into this format. So people are like, "Where's the question?" It was it was as much a recommendation, I think, in in that area. I have read Drops of God. I read the first two out of what I want to say were like four or five volumes devoured them ravenously in print. Something fell apart with, with drops of God. And I feel like Lauren Davis was the one who clued me in on that, that where it's like, it was hugely successful in Japan. And then either a, it went on a huge uh, delay as like the health of the creator broke down or B it was postponed for some other reason. And then maybe C people lost the rights, all of which is to say, as far as I know, I've never seen more than like the first three volumes and then a weirdly titled like drops of God colon something, something that seems like it's either a spinoff, a quick wrap up, wrap up or an offshoot story. I think I bought them all in a hoarding fit digitally and still haven't read them because I'm not sure. Like, weirdly, uh, another manga that everyone speaks well of, like one of the great manga that did end up in translation here is Nana uh, about uh, um, female rock and rollers that, uh, that, that everyone loved. But again got and got much further down the line of serialization. I want to say there's maybe 13 or 14 volumes. And then the health of the artist did blow out. And I'm like, I should read that. I'm like, it's not fully collected. And I'm like, it doesn't matter, Jeff, you should still read it. I'm like, I'm not taking chances. So 
I love the first couple of volumes of Drops of God. You're absolutely right, Sky. It totally rung my chimes. There's some great scenes where the guy is, because of course he's like trained to smell like pencil shavings and all that stuff so that he can nail the notes in the wine. And it is lovely that it was a huge success, but um, it's kind of on a back burner for me. But yeah, it is It is absolutely that incredibly well-researched thing. The stuff where someone tastes the wine and, of course, they're transported like to, to visually convey, like, I'm getting a sense of the terroir. And suddenly they're standing on a field and the sun's rising and they're like, this makes me feel free and open. And suddenly they're able to talk about the fact that it's, you know, clearly a, a wine that was in a certain area of france known as the sun belt and then you get a history of the region and stuff like that beautiful great stuff uh but yeah never i never was able to finish it so bomb 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 that was a fast answer and and i think that that sort of takes us right up to the end i think graham yes whatnots we have um we've literally gotten like halfway through the questions which is very exciting and so unlike us i know like like, how did that happen that we actually got halfway through the questions? Yeah. This is, is nuts, and it makes me slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I've, I've got to be honest. Uh, but we did it. Yeah. Halfway. Congratulations to us. Jeff, maybe 10 years, like, we're, we're finally getting it together. Actually, Graham, I think if you look at it, the questions that we read were just really, really long. So it's like half the Shh. page count. No, I know. But... I know. No, I know. I know. <laughs> Don't take this away from me. I do know this. Because I think it's a third of the questions. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll, we'll handle things. We'll get it handled. We'll get it sorted, people. Thank you so much for your questions, everyone. This was – I always love doing the Q&A episodes. This was a huge relief. There's some questions coming up that are really fun, you know, two or three of which I'm so excited to come up and, and talk about. So. Oh Lord! We're, what's going to happen is next time we're going to go horribly off the rails. Yeah, I I, I warn everyone. <laughs> we kept this to like you know a little bit over two hours. We're, we're the next one's going to be like four hours long, and we're still going <laughs> to ask questions. I apologize in advance, but what says we want more than doing that? Yes, I just want to throw that out there. Yes. Wait. Uh, what's what? <laughs> do you mean? <laughs> apologizing in advance for something or actually doing oh, no, what we're no, just, apologizing just going for? Ho- yeah, going horribly off the rails and, and taking oh. far too long to get not far enough at all. Okay, I would say the only other thing that's more than that is apologizing for it in advance. You're welcome for that as well, whatnots. <laughs> there are going to be show notes for this episode at waywellpodcast.com and they will be up as soon as Jeff puts the episode up because he's really on top of that in a way that I am just not. Mm-hmm. Thank everyone. Thank Jeff for his, his service. Right now, out loud, it's it's going to be something that I think we all should do more often. Jeff, thanks for your service. While you're waiting for that, or while you're waiting for next week's episode, depending on what you're waiting for, uh, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com and at waitwhatpodcast on Twitter are the places that you'll want to go. There's also instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod where you'll see me just note crazy anniversaries in this this world of comics. Just sometimes people are born, sometimes comics come out, sometimes people die. I will say this, if you buy a metric shit ton of Marvel Age magazines, you do have access to the publication dates of a lot of Marvel comics. Wow. Just going to say that. I realized, It took me a long time, Jeff, but I finally realized that this week. And I was like, maybe this is what I've been doing all along. I've actually been planning 
<laughs> but I'm going to pretend that it was. That's what I was doing. That seems smart. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Jeff is on Twitter solo at Lazy Bastard at L A Z Y B A S T I D. I am on Twitter solo at Graham M at G R A E M E M. And more importantly, we are a Patreon supported podcast, which means Jeff Lester steps up to the podium, goes, <clears throat> taps the microphone a couple of times, and then says the following words: "Is this is is this on? Is this is this on? Hello, sibilants, sibilants." One, two, three, four, sibilants. Uh, also, we have to say, like, we love all of our listeners, really do. I mean, the Q&As, I think, are part of the things that are great because for me, that's like having the relationship with you guys. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, of course, love my relationship with Graham. But knowing that, that you guys listen and sort of want to know what we think about things and can ask us, it, it's really it's also exciting for me because there a lot of these uh, questions are coming from people that i follow on twitter myself so it's kind of like oh hey it's sky or like super happy when dan billings who we didn't get a chance to answer his question for example uh you know uh through next week next week. week tune in next week i was like ah oh, dan so you know it's kind of i that that really does mean a lot to me um it's interesting like we're talking about this being a thing that we've done for 10 years and there's um in some ways there's the talking every week with graham which means a lot and has had a huge importance in my life but there's also this extra community that's grown out of that and it's i never know how to take it because it feels like something that. I should be a little more John Byrne-esque about and be willing to take more uh, responsibility for. But it just sort of seems like such a uh, wonderfully happy and very special uh, side effect that seems delightfully out of my control that I'm super grateful for. Uh, and as a result of that, also the Patreon, which just as we're 10 years old now, the Patreon is... Five years old when we when we started off uh, when we sprang from the loins of Savage Critic, which is an image that I wish I had not put in anyone's head, and uh, you know leapt out into the world on our own with the Wait What podcast website. It's uh, it's it's been it's been a remarkable couple of years, and that support from all the listeners uh means so much and really thank you to everyone on, on patreon for throwing us a, a little bit of the the quat lose um whenever you can or on a, a recurring month-to-month basis the, the quaaludes the quat the lose isn't that a that's a that's a star trek um, currency isn't it is it i yeah. don't know it's a 50 quat lose on the new on the yeah they probably are you know, fifty quat lose on the newcomer or something like that. Why am I, I anyway? I look. I have no. I have no idea. But let's just say yes. Grant, yes, do you Jeff, know how hard right. it is for me to actually talk about the dosh without calling it the dosh every time? Call it dosh. Time? People are calling it dosh in the in the questions. That series. is true. Call it the dosh. I will. Dosh is making a comeback. It's our tenth anniversary. <laughs> we can talk about dosh again. Don't call it a comeback, Graham. Dosh has been here for years. There's a timely reference. <laughs> The, the proper term is classic, Graham, but I'll t- I'll accept it. I see where you're coming <laughs> from, and I accept it. 
Uh, everyone, seriously, we, we owe you a huge debt of gratitude. Uh, we want to give a shout out to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, to whom we're especially grateful for uh, her continuing support of this podcast. Um, I do want to mention they're not currently supporting us, but American Ninth Art Studios, uh, I feel like it's hard for us to talk at the five-year and 10-year mark without talking about how incredibly grateful we are to them uh, for their uh, continuing support of us for a, a good chunk of time. Um, yeah, that that was that was a, a really big deal actually when when they they started supporting us and, and yeah yeah and, and the I, fact I, that I they think did that was the fight where you and me were both like oh wow okay yeah like we can we can do this yeah yeah exactly it's kind of like oh all right well we better I I I wasn't going to wear the you know break out the big boy pants to wear but it looks like I'm going to have to break out the big boy pants so. You guys are all awesome, and thank you so much. There's, like I said, there's some weeks where it is incredibly gratifying and important and necessary, and that this is one of them. So uh, we thank you, Graham. What Jeff means is all of the weeks is that- incredibly gratifying. <laughs> I, I like the application. Like some weeks, you're like, "Fuck it, I don't care." No, <laughs> not true at all. Like we, I, I know from talking to you, Jeff. I know from knowing you, yeah, that you are. Every single fucking week, as grateful as I am. Yes! For, for people, like, not only supporting us on Patreon, but listening. Uh, like, honestly, just paying us attention when we we ramble the way that we do. It's it's great. It's, it's a ridiculously um, flattering and filling platform to have. It is, Graham, all the time. I think so. Every too. single moment, every single moment, <laughs> apart from when Jeff has to read the Judge Shreds at the last minute, and it, it gets really stressed about it. Oh god, and it's then stressful. He, he he does still appreciate it, but he also kind of hates it. No, 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 no. I, and he, like, I no, no, no. It's no, like no. a war with himself. No, 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 It's true. No, you should. He just his beard vibrates. Everyone. There, there was a point during it, the Baxter buildings where I was like, "Sweet Jesus, are we coming out of this alive?" But I haven't hit that point. This is just like doing. We are, we are literally on, on volume five, Dredge. Yeah, yeah. So like, we, we've we've got years of this to go. No, through. I know, I know. But it's also it's it's like doing incredibly pleasurable homework. Maybe at some point that will that will change. But a incredibly pleasurable. But it is kind of like you you got to do it and you kind of also have to make the time to do it or you're boned in a way that the wait what podcast and I'm uh, sorry. Baxter building is like doing was like the way I actually did homework as opposed to the way that I, mean, I needed like, to do the homework. Last minute and then you're like, oh, God, on the bus, on the way to school. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, huge, huge I, I am weirdly relieved to know that you two got to fight with Baxter building. We were like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I've, I've got to fucking read these comics. Oh, God. I'm going to completely derail our, our um, signing off for a mm-hmm. second. To say that one of the things I, ha- I talked before about like reading for pleasure versus reading for work. Yes. One of the things I did read for pleasure this week was 1980s issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Mm. Wow. Which, I mean, like you were the Spider-Man fan of the two of us. Like, yes. I've read comics by, you know, I wouldn't term myself a Spider-Man fan at all. Mm-hmm. And those comics are 
so pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. specifically, I'm I'm talking like the Roger Stern. I was going to uh, say when you talk about it, I'm like it's got to be the Stern era because it's so strong. Yeah. yeah, it's so strong and it's so fun and it's 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 just really um, like in no way reinventing the wheel superhero comics, but mm-hmm. just well done superhero comics. Yep. That I I did have this moment of Stern is fans with Burn. Uh, friends with Burn. Yes. And it's happening more or less at the same time as Burn's doing Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. And yet this is just infinitely more fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and what I think is interesting is they both – they were friends. They were feeding off the vibe. Of course, they literally collaborated several times, not least of which on a run on Captain America together. Uh, and I – and it is it – is, it's – each of them sort of provides – a piece that a that can um, help the other one immeasurably, but it is amazing to go back and read this stuff and be like, Stern is the guy who's a lot more, in that sense, self sufficient. Like he's able to do good Avengers comics with one team. He's able to do good Spider Man comics with another team. He did some surprisingly strong Doctor Strange comics with yet another artist. You know, so yeah, it's, I get it. That's, that would actually be a lot of fun to read. So, um, I'm, I'm envious, Graham. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I highly recommend if you find yourself just being like, I've had a day, <laughs> like just, just going back to those. Also, I did not realize until rereading, and I've, like I said, I've read this one before, did not realize until rereading that the climactic Hobgoblin three parter. Stern and Romita are both absent from the final part of it. Wow. Which is so weird that I was like, what happened? Yeah, geez, that's that's super rough. That's got to be a story. Um, right? There yeah. has to something has to have happened there. Well, I have to say the idea that this means that we'll do a Spider-Man read-through just makes my heart go pitter-pat because... I, I, part of me is really tempted, but <laughs> let's leave that until after we finish Dread. <laughs> That's... Spider-Man, Spider-Man is super solid through like 300 at least. Yeah. Amazing Spider-Man is genuinely super solid through like 300. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, part of the I would love very... that. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I just have seen a weird glimpse into the future. Yeah. Which really means that this is the point where I go, bye! <laughs> this is where I'm going to put uh, fucking run as the playout music instead of our usual. Thank <laughs> you.